Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. No John Mellencamp this morning in my headset. 843. It's Wednesday, February 1. 843-661-0937. I'll cut the rev a little slack. He's doing double duty. He's having to be the sidekick and the producer extraordinaire this uh-huh. morning. And yesterday we had a snafu. I just right? I had pushed the wrong button. Actually, I didn't mash the button okay. correctly. I, hey, I said that. I didn't mash the button correctly. And I still had the other station feed going into your headset. So when we started, uh, actually in my headsets, I was, I was hearing the radio station. I was hearing what we were supposed to hear. I was waiting for you to start talking. Didn't realize that when you started talking, you didn't hear yourself. You heard music from the other station. That's why you were confused and not letting me forget it 24 hours later. You're right. And because um, I don't expect you to make a mistake. Um, <laughs> well, well I mean, there's that. Well, we, we demand excellence of one another. See, you and I went on this rant Friday when we announced the podcast mm-hmm. that we were so counting on one another. Mm-hmm. Rev never has to worry about me. I mean, we make mistakes. Don't don't get me wrong. We misspeak. Yeah. Case in point. Occasionally. And, and when we do, it's very public, and we talk about it, and we <laughs> yes. point it out to yeah, everybody. When, when I mispronounce a word, which I, you know, I'm known for, um, <laughs> Rev writes it down. Okay, that's number 174 <laughs> that's times the- that he has made up a word or mispronounced the word whatever um ambidextrous is it floats and um you know it, it's in the water and amphibious he can shoot basketball with either arm or either hand um eight four three six six one oh nine three seven the best misuse of a word i got two examples it's almost like we could have a final four in great misuses of words um i've told the story of a friend of mine he's dead now died tragically in a car wreck but they were having their first kid and we didn't know our butt from third base. I mean, the, it's slow pitch softball season. His wife is pregnant. He's going to be the first one of us to have a child. Um, you know, we don't know what we're doing, man. You know, the biggest question we had, do we have an insurance and will it cover it? You know what I mean? Because we're young. We just got married. Um, insurance is money out of your pocket. And you ain't crazy about taking money out of your pocket for anything. Um, and then you have an unplanned pregnancy. So um, we're all, you know, just kind of, um, it's, it's pretty funny looking back on it, how little we knew of the world. I mean, we knew where to buy beer. We knew where the ball field was. We knew what uh, the, the remote control to switch from one sports event to another. I mean, that was kind of the limits of our understanding. The important stuff. Yeah, the, the important time, stuff. No question about it. And we had it down pat. And I yearned for those days again, uh, the, the, the uncomplicated affairs uh, of a young man. So my friend's wife gets pregnant. She goes to her routine visit, and it's about time. I mean, she's obviously showing. She's well into her pregnancy, and he comes to the ball field um, with a beer in his hand and says, um, hey, they're going to seduce my wife tomorrow. <laughs> so, man, you don't want anybody seducing your wife. I don't know much about pregnancies and having babies and, and all the other things, and I have a fairly limited vocabulary, but seduce ain't the word you're looking for. <laughs> You don't want a wife. You don't want your wife being seduced by a physician. And he said, "Oh yeah, seduced." And I mean, <laughs> and it was just one of the one. We're we're all it's eight or ten of us together. We're all like, "Is he right or not?" Art says he's not, but Art doesn't know any more about this than he does. <laughs> and you couldn't look at a phone back then and, no. and look it up and I find mean, a definition. Because we would have done that. Seduce right? or induce? What is the word? Well, I mean, we know now after we've become worldly. Oh yeah, once you're seasoned, and in, oh, you're yeah, right, we're yeah. seasoned and informed and well aware of the world around us. We know now that what he meant was induce but did you have to find a dictionary to, i mean to prove i think it? it was one of us who made bees in high school and we took him at his word i got you you know he not, not not in real time he had to come back the next softball night 
and say, hey, man, I've done some research. Um, Ard was right. Chuck had the wrong word. It was not seduce, but rather induce. The second great misuse of a word, there have been a lot of misuses of words, but the second great use or misuse is when Meathead on all of the family went on a anti-American rant in front of Archie Bunker. And Bunker stood, remember the chair he sat in? I mean, it's in the Smithsonian now. Yeah. I mean, it's a member of American, I mean, it's a, it's a part of American history and memorabilia. Uh, Bunker stood out of the chair and looked at um, Rob Reiner, who was Michael Stivich, who he called Meathead. And uh, as Meathead was doing this, um, you know, uh, liberal rant, anti-American in nature, Archie Bunker stood out of his chair and said, don't you ever say anything suppository about our country while you're in my home. <laughs> so, 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 so anyway, th- those are the two great misuses of words. Um, now, now, I do believe the one thing we've done on this show, Rev, contrary to my good friend and Archie Bunker, is we've created words out of thin air that I think should be included. Sure. I mean, if soccer mom is a new word, then why is optimism not? I mean, why do exactly. we have to say hopeful and optimistic? Why can't we say optimistic? I know. I mean, I, I, it I just, just think, makes too much sense. Well, I mean, and I think we've added um, a great deal to the um, uh, to, to the expectations of and, our and its efficiency. I just like the efficiency of those. Well, words. the Southerners combined six or eight or ten words. Um, you know, there, there's a murder trial going on in uh, in Walterboro, uh, in Colleton County. Uh, it's uh, it's the Alex. It's well, it's expelled Alex Murdoch. It's pronounced Alec Murdoch. Um, why do we say Alec Murdoch? Because that's what he says. And uh, when they ask him the name, he says Alec Murdoch. I'm still in the process, and I think I got to get a lead for Friday, kind of kind of a week wrap up of what happened in the trial. Oh, okay, good. But they're they're talking about now um, a a recorded interview of Alec Murdoch when he says either um, I did him so bad or they did him. Um, so bad, but he's from the low country of South Carolina and it's going to be hard to distinguish whether or not he said I or they, they slowed it down yesterday to one third speed. And it sounds to me like it's as they did him so bad. So here's the question. Uh, once again, I've listened to some of the testimony. I've read some of the uh, Avery Wilkes, the post and Curry is doing a good job on Twitter of updating in real time, exactly what's going on. I don't know Avery. I know who he is, uh, in my political past. I think we dealt with him a time or two or three when I was the scandalous lieutenant governor of South Carolina, um, and they weren't they weren't calling to be nice or be friendly. <laughs> and you were the target yeah, of those I was, reporters. You're right. So. I, I was the uh, subject um, of their of their coverage. But um, but Avery's doing a good job in real time of updating via Twitter what's happening in the courtroom. Um, here's the interesting part to me. You ready? Here's GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip. I mean, I don't have a law degree. I'm not in the courtroom. I'm not a reporter. I'm not a journalist. I've read no deposition. I don't know what sort of um, evidence has been um, introduced in the case. I've kept up somewhat from afar. Um, when he says, oh, let, let's make the assumption. I mean, if he, if he says, I did him so bad, I mean, that's kind of a guilt of I mean, admission of guilt. I mean, if he, if he, I don't think he says that. I think Sled has made a big mistake here because once again, the defense's job is to do what? Plant a seed of doubt beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, well if you're arguing as a um, as a prosecutor that the recording says I did him so bad, and that is an admission, and it and it comes off, and the jury hears it as something else. I mean, if I'm on the jury 
And a lot of the cases predicated upon a self-admission of I did him so bad. And it sounds to me like he said they did him so bad that there's two things that come to my mind if I'm a member of the jury. The, the first is that's not an, an admission because he said it sounds to me like he said they. The second thing is he knows who they are. Exactly. He knows who they are. How many of you have seen the miniseries or the, the miniseries? How many of you have seen the, the series? But I mean, it's not a miniseries because I don't know what it ends. Um, Ozark. Mm-hmm. I have. And, and it includes drug cartels. And, you know, I mean, it, it gets so crazy and out of hand. I don't know that that's where we end up. But I have a suspicion that there's some of that in here. That, that somebody gets so far out over their ski. There's no doubt about it. And we're not arguing whether Alec Murdoch's a dirtbag. And whether he stole money and, and set up cases and, and used influence and um, strategized in certain ways in certain areas to, um, to maximize his financial potential at the expense of innocent victims. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think that's fairly well chronicled. I think it, to some degree he's admitted that much. I mean, he let his life get totally and completely out of control and as a result made just some of the most horrific decisions a lawyer could possibly ever make in a million years. I think he's guilty of a lot of things. That's not what he's on trial for as we speak, right? I mean, he's not on trial for stealing or embezzling or being a, just a, just a, a lousy, no-count human being that would take advantage of the people he's taking advantage of. I think he's done all that. I mean, I think he's lousy and no-count and, and has some sort of um, ah, inner spirit that most of us can't relate to. But that's not what he's on trial for. He's on trial for killing his son and wife. And, and I think as a member of the jury, you, you got to try to put all that other stuff in the, you know, kind of on the periphery. It doesn't matter if he embezzled money. It doesn't matter if he, I mean, in this particular case, it does matter. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, now all the other things I think he's going to have to deal with at some point in time. But right now we're talking about killing his son and, and wife. And I think when you say, and then the sled agent or the investigator said yesterday that he sticks to his guns, he heard it, he interpreted as, you know, I did him so bad. I, I, I'm, I, when you hear that, it just sounds to me. But I mean, once again, if somebody said, is there a chance it's I? Yeah, there's a chance, but it sure sounds to me like it's they. And if I'm on that jury and, and that is presented as a compelling piece of evidence, ah, that's a seed of doubt. I, I began to think and wonder if the, trial basically comes down to that the i versus they i mean with it with any there's forensic evidence there's obviously this case is going i don't know how long it's going to take for the case to be presented and defended and everything but um i just wondered if it's going to come down to i or they well i mean to, to me what do you believe he well, said I mean, the state has put a lot of credence in what they believe he said and you know it, the, the defense is trying to make an argument you know find the man i'll show you the crime uh, to, I'm not saying they, they hadn't said that. And once again, guys, I'm this is G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip um, legalese. I mean, I, you know, I certainly don't have a law degree, certainly don't understand the nuances, have not been privileged to what a lot of the um, the insiders, so to speak, have been. But um, but I want to try to get somebody on. Once again, we're not debating whether he's a bad guy or not. We're debating whether he killed his wife and kid. And if he said they, does he know who they is? I mean, that's not, I mean, he doesn't have the, his legal team is trying to prove him innocent of those charges. To them, I guess, Rev, it doesn't matter who they is or not. Just means it's not him. But, 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 but if I were a member of the, the prosecution, 
I would. I mean, could he be an accessory to Murray? Could he could have gotten himself in such a place that that a drug cartel showed up? I mean, he owes them money. He's supposed to do something for them. I mean, we know that. I mean, Ozark is a Netflix documentary. I get that. It's a Netflix series. But those sorts of things happen. I mean, there was a real person named Pablo Escobar. El Chapo is real. I mean, there are there have been you know human beings' heads rolling down the streets in 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 Mexico as a result of crossing the cartel. And if you cross the cartel, it, it stands to reason that your son's brain may be laying on the ground beside his feet. That they're, they're not anywhere near as stunned by the, some of those stark realities as we are. But, uh, but once again, I'm going too far down this road. I don't have enough data, information. I had about an hour and a half yesterday eating lunch, answering emails, doing some other things in my truck. It's kind of my office. Um, and it, it's such an office. My daughter gave me a, uh, for Christmas, gave me a desk that hangs on the steering wheel. You know what I mean? So you can put your notes here and put your right on your lap and all these other good oh, things. There you go. Yeah, save some money, man, because I don't like hanging out with the hippies at Starbucks anymore. <laughs> um, they ain't my type, and I'm not, and I'm not theirs. So I get me a cup of coffee, sit in my truck, answer emails, and do all my my um, prep work and some of the other things that I'm responsible responsible for. But I did listen to about an hour and a half of the of the hearing, and it was when this lead investigator was on the stand uh, being cross-examined, and it seemed the defense team did a pretty good job of questioning whether or not he heard I or they. Uh, we'll see how that works out. I mean, we really truly – I mean, it's a terrible, terrible chapter in South Carolina history, no question about it. Um, they were a an enormously powerful family legally and, um, I mean, influentially. You know what I mean? That they, they, they had a lot of – I mean, if something was going to get done down that way, it had to be blessed by the Murdochs, so to speak. If you're running for office – I mean, I heard that when I ran for lieutenant governor. Has, have you gone to see the Murdochs? You know, in that really? part of – Yeah, there, there aren't a lot of Republicans in some of those areas, but they're enough to matter, and you kind of got to go kiss the ring in York of this person and kiss the ring in Greenville of that person. Make sure that they know who you are, uh, what your intents are, what you're motivated by. Um, and they were one of the families in that part of the state – that you kind of had to get the um not the blessings of but just make sure you make them aware of what your eventual uh plans are 8436610937 we love our state but right now when you think of South Carolina from a national perspective if you're watching television or paying attention to news in New York or Los Angeles or wherever when you think South Carolina you're thinking Murdoch well i would imagine right now but um you and i had a conversation yesterday when I think of South Carolina, I think top five growing state in America. I think of BMW, Volvo, bigger commitment by Boeing, Michelin, um, you know, uh, just unbelievable growth along the coast. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine there, there are a lot of people around America that look at the deep south in a certain way. And this is what doesn't surprise me, South Carolina has. I mean, there are probably oak trees with peat moss. There are probably houses with columns. There are probably long driveways with hunting dogs and shotguns and yeah, I mean, yeah, I get that. I mean, I understand she's probably, you know, the the kid was probably laying beside a John Deere tractor. I mean, I understand. Here's the problem. It's not a problem. Here's the reality. It's not a problem at all. The South has had an evolution. For some stupid reason, Southerners have allowed the South to be portrayed in, 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 with, with a certain bias, with, with a certain predisposition that is not 100% accurate. Where are the fastest growing areas in America? I mean, you can say it's all about the weather. Okay, maybe it is. Low taxes, maybe it is. Quality of life, maybe it is. The ocean, okay. But but there's no questioning that the macro demo 
that the South is outgrowing anywhere in America. I mean, the Midwest is, is losing population. The Northeast is losing population. Um, some of the um, some of the Western states are gaining population. Most of the Southern states are gaining population. So, so when you, you're right, when 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 someone who has a preconceived disposition of South Carolina, of, of course there's murderers in South Carolina. Of course they're getting off. Of course a family had a hundred year dynasty of law enforcement. You know, solicitors and and, and deputy attorneys. And I mean, of course that's the way the South was established. That's what the South is known for. Is it? I mean, how is it? How is South Carolina? I mean, if South Carolina has all that wrong with it. Why is it one of the five fastest growing states in America? It has been for about three or four consecutive years. I think this year it's the third, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's um, Nevada. No, it's Florida one, Nevada two, South Carolina three. And we've kind of, you know, we, we've kind of gone back and forth with Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. I mean, Florida's kind of just another, I mean, it's, it's um, Florida's outgrowing the South by a substantial uh, margin. But as Florida fills up, <laughs> And there's no more room for any more people. South Carolina becomes, you know, uh, a place that a lot of northern aggressors look to to call <laughs> to call home. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. It doesn't matter if I know what I'm talking about or not. It's easy to defend the home team, right? <laughs> right. I mean, if you're a native South Carolinian, lived here in your entire life, and you feel there's a kind of a misconception that you know your state, all your state does is get things wrong and do things and do things backwards. I mean, if, I'm, if, if my home state gets everything wrong and does everything back asswards, then why are we one of the top move-in states in America? Why are we one of the top five states for real estate sales? I mean, I get the good weather. I get the ocean. I get the growth along the coast. But why is BMW, Volvo, uh, Michelin, Boeing, why have they decided to do business in South Carolina? It's a cool state. It's a good state. And I'm proud to be from South Carolina and make no apologies for our history, our ancestry, um, you know, what we stand for, what we believe in. Um, we're going to have a presidential candidate that will announce before the end of this month from South Carolina. We may have two candidates from South Carolina announced as Republican primary contestants. Um, it's not a, um, I mean, it's just not, this is not your grandfather's South. This is a very dynamic region of America. Now, there's some old hands and old guard of the South that don't like all this growth. They would rather it stay as it was kind of an agrarian-based economy and a slower pace of life. I think you've got to embrace newness. You've got to embrace new energy. And, and I don't think South Carolina's doing as good as could be expected of a state that has, you know, traditionally done things a certain way. But, but now evolving into uh, maintaining some of that heritage and history, but accepting that um, America's a changing place. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Morning, Bobby. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, when you were mentioning about the Murdoch case and, uh, and the recording, it brought back to my memory about the O.J. Simpson trial. If I remember correctly, there was a big deal about the gloves um, and, and not fitting when the prosecution brought up about the gloves and that became a mistake. I'll never forget the lawyer who said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And talking about those, about what uh, Murak may or may not have said, it could be, if he didn't admit, you must acquit. Good deal, Bobby. Thank you. That, that's mm -hmm. a good analogy in comparison. You're right. Uh, Johnny Cochran, you know, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Once the prosecution put so much emphasis on a single piece of information 
there better be no questions about it being right or not. And when they argued at the OJ trial, this was his glove, the glove wouldn't fit. You could see the jury. I mean, once again, I don't know that OJ would have gotten convicted under any circumstance, but it certainly rationalized some of the decision the defense made. I mean, that, that was a very racially motivated decision um, from the events of Rodney King and some other things that had happened in California. I mean, in other words, I don't know the jury had any interest in seeing the evidence. They'd made their mind up that this was kind of a, um, you know, a get even sort of sort of verdict. Um, but but the state of South Carolina has, it appears to me, now once again, guys, I'm not in the courtroom. I'm not privileged to all the, you know, the back and forth and, you know, the um, the introducing of evidence, what, what the judge is allowed to be presented, what, he, what he's not allowed to be presented. But I did hear one of the lead investigators who I consider one of the star witnesses for the state say, I heard it, and I'm sure I heard it, as I did him so bad. When I listen to it personally, it sounds more like they did him so bad than I. Now, now once again, could could I be convinced it says I? Of course I could, because I think there's some questioning there. But when you introduce as a major piece of evidence, you don't need the jury to question anything about it. Is this a such-and-such shell casing? Yes. Is this a such-and-such tire tread? Yes. Is this a such-and-such cell phone log, call, record, recording? Yes. Is this what he said or not? Not sure. I can't tell. Can't quite make it out. And once again, as a defense lawyer, what is your job? To try to convince the jury there is a reasonable doubt that this person did what they're being accused of. But, But once again, the more compelling question to me is... Let's, for argument's sake, say that, that he said they. They did him so bad. Who is they? I mean, what, what did Alec Murdoch get himself? What situation or set of circumstances did he get himself into where, I don't want to say he expected something like this to happen, but he's not completely and totally surprised. In fact, he has some grasp of who it might be. I mean, he didn't say somebody somewhere did him so bad. He said they did him so bad. The, or he didn't say who. Yeah, who did him so bad? <laughs> yeah. Why did something like this happen? He said they did. So, so whether he said I did him so bad, and the state's argument that's somewhat of a confession, or he said they did him so bad, it's very intriguing that um that had he would not say you know I got no idea who did this. He said they did him so bad. And I th- and I like you. I listened to it a few times, and I thought it it's they. That's how I hear it right now. And I thought the same thing. Well, who's they? Sounds like you're a little familiar. But but you're not on the on the jury to decide who they is. Right. You're on the jury to decide whether he killed his wife and child. And and that plants a seed of doubt. If the state introduces as their primary well, again, they may have another smoking gun or two or three. Sure. But they spent a couple of hours yesterday addressing that single sentence. They rec- they played the recording. They played the recording. They questioned the witness. You've got the examination and the cross-examination. And, and I just think they placed a seed of doubt. In, in other words, do, do I believe Alec Murdoch killed, killed his wife and, and kid? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, if I were on the jury, I would like to believe I could conclude whether it made, uh, whether there's a reasonable doubt or not. See, Rev, it's not my job as a member of the jury to do what I think. It's my job. Is there a reasonable doubt? Is he guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? I mean, the, you know, the state's not asking for the death penalty, and I think the AG's getting beat up a little bit on. I mean, if if you're charging the father for killing his kid and wife in the most horrific 
way imaginable, and you're not asking for the death sentence, when do you ever ask for the death sentence? I mean, in all honesty, I mean, uh, you know, let's talk about the, the, the AG's office here for a second. I'd love to hear somebody um, from the AG office explain why they didn't ask for the death sentence. Because if you don't ask for the death sentence, if you believe that Alec Murdoch killed as brutally as the videos show, as, as graphically as the, the jury has seen, if you believe that Alec Murdoch killed his wife and kid, and, and there's a brain laying beside the feet of a kid that you believe the father killed, and the face of the mother blown completely off. I mean, how do you not, how do you ever ask for the death sentence again if you didn't ask for the death sentence in this case? I mean, is that some, you know, uh, family of privilege and prominence and influence? I mean, is there some, I don't know, some, um, some different way of dealing with that family than you would deal with another family? In other words, if Dave Baker were, were to kill his wife and kid, in the most horrific way imaginable, does the state ask for the death sentence because Dave Baker's family has not been as politically and judicially, you know, influential in that part of the state? I just think those are interesting um, questions. There is no good here. I mean, there is no good. We're seeking justice, which is what the judicial system does. Um, but when you when you hear the gory details and you you just you know hear the the stories, it's like wow. I mean, how in the world could a father possibly point a loaded shotgun at the, you know, the head of his kid and pull the trigger. I mean, it's just beyond human comprehension, but that's what he's being charged with point. I want to make it. We'll move on. I think the state hurt itself yesterday by insisting that, that they, there is, you know, they heard I, and that's a big part of the case. And, and I think most of the jury says, I don't know if it's I or they man. And because of that seed of doubt, Ah, I don't know how you make that conviction. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So if you go to the, um, if you go to the, I don't know, the opinion of is it they or is it I, and then you get this other information, if you remember the jury, you get this other information a little bit later in the day that two seconds before Alec Murdoch called his wife, Maggie, her phone reoriented the the portrait on the phone it's amazing what they know about us rev when it comes to our cell phone records and pings from towers and but i mean it's 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 pretty conclusive now surprising but it's not yes some of the digital i don't know the digital experts have decided that they can prove that two seconds before alec called maggie her phone reoriented the portrait orientation change, I guess, from vertical to horizontal. Is that the way I'm understanding it? Mm-hmm. So it, it leads you to believe that. So so you've, you've, you remember the jury. You, you were told it's I, but it sounds like they. You got this doubt. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you hear this new information that somebody called Maggie two seconds after her portrait reoriented on her cell phone. I'm back to being more confused than I was to begin with. Let's go to the phone. Rick and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Hey, Everybody Rick. loves a true crime story. But, um, no, I've been thinking about that, too. And what you said, you know, the horrific way those people were killed, faces blown off, all that kind of stuff. The DA might, the AG might be thinking that shows frenzy, not just calculation. You know, it was passion, a moment of just like a killing frenzy. And temporary insanity might came in, but I really think for a man like Alex Murdoch, he's going to meet his maker anyway, whether it's one day or 20 years. 
but I think it would be a lot more just punishment for a man who's used to wealth, privilege, a hunting plantation and all, to wake up in an 8 by 10 cell knowing he has ruined every day of his life. To me, that's a much more fitting punishment than it would be. Usually in the long run, that's cheaper for the state anyway. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. You know, that goes back when Rick says that he'll meet his maker and he'll be held ultimately accountable in the grand scheme of things. Remember when the debate first started about one nation under God? My mom was so non-politically inclined. My mom had very few political opinions, very little political interest. She voted. That was about it. I don't know if she'd been parliament. I ran in 04. She died in 06. Um, I think she thought her kid was getting into something he probably shouldn't. He probably would have been better off not getting involved in. But but in the debate one time, I asked my mom one day, because my mom was a Proverbs lady, very spiritual lady, um, guided by the, the, the Bible, had a very biblical worldview, and was uh, relentless in, in believing that life was, be, life was to be lived by the way the Bible says life was to be lived. Um, could come off a little bit, you know, uh, sanctimonious at times. I don't think she intended to. But if you didn't know her well, you could say, who does she think she is? But um, but my mom said one day when I questioned her about one nation under God, she said, it doesn't matter if it's in the pledge or not. I mean, that doesn't excuse us. That doesn't exempt us. That doesn't get us out of the fray. I mean, we're still going to ultimately be held accountable by God in heaven. It doesn't matter what the Gamecock or Tiger score is. It doesn't matter how many times Clemson beat South Carolina or South Carolina beat Clemson. When you meet your maker, that maker will be God. And God, I mean, you know, God, your life will flash before your very eyes and God will hold you accountable for the good, the bad, the indifferent. So whether it's in a pledge or not, I mean, that, that didn't bother her much at all. Didn't change the fact that the Bible was, uh, you know, the sovereign word of God. Now, now Alec Murdoch, you, you do wonder this. You, you wonder um, if you are guilty and you only know you're guilty and you're in a six by six sale how, how do you live with that i mean how, how do you process that i mean if you're in a six by six sale it doesn't matter if you have influence and power it doesn't matter if you did have influence or power but but you're sitting there knowing or believing that sooner or later you will die and you question what sort of judgment awaits you know nobody's sure about judgment day nobody's sure what heaven and hell look like i mean i have opinions you have an opinion uh, i've read theologians and what they say about, you know, X, Y, or Z. But if you're someone who knows in their heart you've done something so tragic and horrific, how do you live with that, especially in a six-by-six sale with a bunch of time on your hand? Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Ken. Um, There's a possibility that Alec Murdoch did not pull both triggers but I'd almost bet my life he pulled one of them and, and somebody else was there. And I don't think they have, in my mind, introduced enough doubt to make me think otherwise. Um, back in the late spring of 2021, when this story first hit and we read about the murders at Moselle and we read about Mallory Beach and and her death on the boat two years earlier and the horrific crime scene, I posted on Facebook a story from the state and one simple word, Ozark. And you mentioned that this morning. That was the first thing that came to my mind. This is some kind of a cartel hit or the cartel telling him, you've got to make this hit 
or somehow there's a cartel involved. And since then, there's been more drug stuff and things uh, come out. Who knows? My, my final response is this trial is not going to make any difference to him because they are not asking for the death penalty. I agree with you. I cannot in my wildest dreams imagine why this case is not a death penalty case. But even if he's found not guilty, he'll be in jail for 70 to 100 years for his financial crimes. So it's really not going to make any difference. Fair enough. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. You know, I've got a friend of the media, and as, as Charles just said, when, when the story first broke, I, I inquired. And I mean, he was very guarded, and some things he knew and some things he didn't know, and some things, some conversations he had had were off the record, and I respect that. But I said, just tell me this. Are we eventually talking Chinese businessmen and Mexican drug cartels? And his answer was one word. Could? Could? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning, Boudreaux. Good morning. You know, you know, Ken, I got a photographic memory, but I don't believe they made film for it since. Well, I don't remember when the when they quit making film for it. But, uh, you know, we, we share a fan base starting to now. I had a couple of your regular callers. I wish I could remember their names, but like I said, I, my memory ain't what it is, what it used to be. He came to me after my show Friday night and said, you call Ken Ard show. I call Ken Ard show. I want to say his name was Steve from Darlington, but I ain't sure. Anyway, shout out to whoever that was after the show. But listen, that what you're talking about, about that recording, okay, there's this uh, – they, it comes out on Facebook where there'll be two words on the screen and there's a sound you hear. And the two words are are nowhere near alike. They don't look alike. They don't sound alike. But when you're looking at them, whichever word you're looking at is the word you hear. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those. There's several of them out there where you'll look at, at, at two different words. And, depending on, and you can look at one for as long as you want and you're going to hear that word. Then you look down to the other one, and they're different words, but yet they sound the same. So what I'm saying is, Ken, when it comes to that recording, people sometimes hear what they think they're supposed to hear or what they what they want to hear. Does that make any sense? Sure it does. Thank those, you. First of all, well, th- thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I said, have you seen those little things? On, they'll come up on Facebook where you're hearing a sound. And depending on what words you're looking at, that's the word you hear, even though the, the sound never changes. Yeah, and the word you're looking at. Thank you, Boudreaux. There's a visual connection yeah. there. But but I, I want to go back. You know, I is the incriminating word. They is not as incriminating, but it's more interesting to me. Go back to Charles's point. I mean, he didn't say somebody did him so bad. Why did somebody do him so bad? I mean, we're debating whether he said, I did him so bad, which is incriminating, and or, or they did him so bad, which to me is less incriminating, but probably more interesting in the grand scheme of things. And guys, there's nothing good about this. I mean, it's a process you go through to find out who committed a violent crime. We've got murders. Two, uh, we got a double murder that happened, and the father and husband is the prime suspect. But but nobody knows what happened except maybe Alec Murdoch or a drug cartel member. But but I think Charles has an interesting theory. They did him so bad. I mean, does that imply I kind of sort of know who it is or I kind of sort of know who it could be? 
let me go there. I kind of sort of know what position or situation I got myself in. And I kind of, I'm not saying this is what I expected, but, but I mean, hypothetically, let's say it's a drug cartel. I mean, people that watch Dozark, people that watch Escobar and, and, and Narcos and some of these others, I mean, it's heartless. I mean, it's, it's like human life doesn't matter at all to anybody. And once you enter that realm, you're done. I mean, there's no, hey, I'm tired of the ride. Can I get off? I want to retire tomorrow. You know, I want to change jobs. I want to leave this way of living and go and go somewhere else. I don't have any idea. I mean, I've heard theories. I mean, I've heard theories about drugs and um, sentence leniency. And, you know, and I mean, that, that family obviously had a lot of power and influence in the judicial system in that part of the state. Uh, was there some of that in play? I don't have any idea. But, but once again, I is the incriminating word. They, to me, is the interesting word. What if Alec Murdoch didn't kill his wife and son? Does he know who did? Does he have an idea why they were killed? Um, I think there's a better chance of that. I mean, I, I don't think Alec Murdoch had lived the sort of life he lived and gotten himself in the sort of situations he'd gotten himself into. And I'm talking about the financial crimes without believing that if he didn't do right by them, that there would be some retribution. There would be some degree of vengeance or revenge or payback on the other end. So, so you know, whether, whether he's sitting in that courtroom innocent of killing his wife and kid, I think he's guilty of knowing that the life he led, the, the, the sequence of events that he was responsible for, led to their eventual horrific Otherwise, death and killing. Otherwise, wouldn't he have said, who did this? Yeah. And, 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 and once again, I is the incriminating word. They is the very... The very interesting word. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone called during the break. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on the air. Hey, guys. Uh, kid, uh, Dave, remember I was, I guess I know you, I was telling y'all yesterday about my my son. You know, he, uh, you know, he uh, goes to work. You know, he heard his finger at work, but he, he goes to work and he comes home and he watches HVAC videos on TV. But the reason I called yesterday is the night before he was saying how bad his finger was hurting and uh, and he was having spasms. So we were worried. So that's why I called in for the prayer request and uh, to show you the power of prayer. He slept in yesterday morning and woke up at 10 a.m. and said, I called me up and said, Dad, my finger feels almost healed. It feels really good. So he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, Son, you go back to work the next day. And, of course, those guys in case are good guys. And said, so just, just gave him a few things to tell him that he can't do, but he can work other than that. So he goes from, from spasms and great pain and then people start praying for him, and he wakes up virtually healed. I mean, that's not amazing. I don't know what is. That's very much. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate the update, yep. my man. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me to hear Breeze with, with emotion in his voice because Breeze and I go way back, and there was some ah, different sorts of emotions involved in our voices as we went. Uh, back in the day, and I'm talking about circulating in worlds that he probably ain't proud he circulated in and places that I'm probably not real proud uh, I circulated in. You know, it's kind of an interesting lesson. Um, it takes some of us longer than others, but in the grand scheme of things, 
Um, we're in control of so little. I mean, our earthly existences, we have some degree of control and, and, you know, our responsibility, we eat hot dogs or we eat, you know, healthy food. We eat, uh, we drive faster. We don't, we, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of things we are in charge of in the world, but, but and in some of the macros, we are kind of like you know, the, the wind chime dangling and the wind blows us one way or blows us another way. I told a story to Rev this morning, um, I mean, I, I've got to be somewhat friendly with the University of South Carolina because of my political past and my affinity for Gamecock athletics. And, um, you know, that's led me to be, uh, Rev accuses me of being more of an insider than I, than I confess. Um, but, but I do, I do enjoy, you know, my, my Gamecock fandom, just as others enjoy their fan, uh, their, their fandom to, to, uh, to Clemson. But, uh, but yesterday I was made aware of a, of a certain situation or circumstance that involved a five-year-old girl who basically had something wrong with her eye. So she goes to the eye doctor expecting probably to get fitted with glasses, you know, or to be told there's a, you know, some sort of stigma or style, whatever. I mean, there's something wrong with your eye. Find out at five years old, she has an inoperable brain tumor and she's a St. Jude's receiving, I would imagine, real aggressive treatment. So I reached out to uh, their big Gamecock fans Nearly every picture I've seen on social media has them or the little girl in a um, in a Gamecock cheering outfit. So I reached out to a friendly at the university, and we've lined up to get some pretty cool things done for this family. And um, I mean, that's rewarding. That's gratifying. That's that's investing in other people's life. And I think what DW said yesterday about uh, I don't know how many of you know DW, but DW and I go way, way, way back. DW is a prayer warrior. I mean, he exhibits the the uh, not just the willingness rev but the consistency of a uh, praying to god in heaven petitioning to the almighty for certain things to be done specifically for this person for spe- spe- uh, specifically you know it's not like god bless all the good people in the world you know how little kids pray god no god there is this certain person in this certain situation who needs certain consideration and i think god rewards obedient prayer and I think, um, I mean, when I hear Breeze speak like that, it warms my heart because me and Breeze ain't always spoke like that. And we've not always lived our lives um, consistent with that sort of um, prioritization of um, our belief system. 843-661-0937. We've got news this morning that um, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, is going to announce her um, her run for president. I think I said last week one day, It'll probably be the middle of February. Um, probably an intentional leak from the Haley camp to the national media that um, that leads to, what, a couple of weeks of speculation that waits on the formal announcement. I think Nikki will probably officially announce February 14 or 15 is what I heard a little bit of last week. But last week I was asked to keep it in, in confidence, and I did. I kept it to myself. Didn't even tell Rev about it. I did tell you one morning that Nikki's probably more likely going to run mm-hmm. um, than not. Someone asked me earlier, so what are the chances? I mean, wh- wh- where's Nikki's lane? Nikki's lane is probably as easily definable as anybody in the race thus far. Um, Nikki is the candidate that the establishment believe they can sell to the America Firsters because she's got a little bit of America First dinner. I don't think she has much. I mean, I want to be careful here and not be disrespectful to a former governor of South Carolina that I actually got elected with in 2010. But but Nikki is the candidate that the, the, the establishment find tolerable and the American firster, the America firsters 
would, would, would maybe to some degree embrace. I don't know how enthusiastic she'll get support of the America Firsters with Trump in the race because he kind of wipes the field well, and, and with that universe of support. That's my question, thinking about her path, and specifically in her home state. I mean, I, as a South Carolina voter, think I would, in the Republican primary, I owe her due consideration. Okay, and I would I would go into this with an open mind, and I owe her that as what as because I think she was a good governor of our state. Um, what do you think she was a good governor? I just I think she she there were a couple of situations during her governorship that I think she handled very well. The shootings in Charleston, right? And so I just I, I owe her due consideration. But you know who am I kidding? I'm I'm a Trump guy. I mean I'm gonna if Trump's running I'm gonna vote for him in the primary. So w- what's her path? Well, I mean Nikki's path. I mean Nikki's more popular in places outside of South Carolina. Nikki will not win South Carolina. That's weird. But but she is a to your point a former popular governor of South Carolina. She has very little chance to win in South Carolina because of the America First movement and Trump has that pretty much on on lockdown. I don't think Nikki has a path. I mean, I personally don't see any way she gets north of 8 or 9 or 10%. Now, I could be wrong, been wrong before about a lot of things, but but the wild card is still DeSantis. I mean, that's still the number. And if you're Trump, the more the merrier. Trump has the, the highest floor and the lowest ceiling of anybody in politics today. Trump is not going to get less than 25% of the Republican primary voter, but he's not going to get more than 40%. So he's got a, a pretty tight window here of support. It is it is absolutely intense. But there's a there, there's a high watermark for Trump. I mean, you're nodding your head. You know that about Trump. Trump's offended a lot of people. I mean, he's rubbed some people the wrong yes, way. He has. Yeah, even the ones that have been supportive kind of want to move on a little bit now from there. Um, I saw yesterday J.D. Vance is endorsing Donald Trump. He has to. Russell Fry's endorsing Donald Trump. Henry McMaster's endorsing Donald Trump. I mean, the political loyalty... That, that Trump demands from folks that he believes he had a large part to do with. Remember when he endorsed a guy running against J.D. Vance and he went to Ohio and he said, hey, this J.D. Vance guy saying things more in line with what we believe than the other guy. Yeah. So he yanks the endorsement from the other guy and says, hey, this guy deserves more consideration. Well, J.D. wins the, um, the primary and then he wins the general and he owes a lot of that to Trump. I mean, there's no question about that. Trump is still uh, an endorser of, of influence in the Republican primary. But back to Governor Haley or back to Nikki, um, I don't know where her lane is. I mean, I really and truly don't. I know what the message will be, uh, the, 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 the sentiment and underlying message will be, I'm the hybrid. You know, I work for President Trump. I've got the America First bona fides. And the establishment, you know, the, the orthodox way we conduct American politics is something I appreciate, understand, and have been diplomatic in nature. And I'm talking about being UN ambassador and all these other sorts of things. The one thing Nikki does, as good as anybody that I've ever been around, is, is discipline, political discipline. She doesn't make many mistakes. She, she, she's kind of a block and tackler. She has a, a, a very unique story. She is a, a female of Indian descent. How many Republicans have risen to the r- highest rank of, um, of the party being a female of Indian descent? So there's exclusivity there that she has that others don't. But, but the long story short, and I mean, consultants can make this as complicated as they choose. Nikki Haley is the manifestation of the establishment making a deal with the America Firsters. They think 
I believe Nikki is an establishment candidate. I'm not voting for an establishment candidate. I'm not supporting an establishment candidate. But Nikki Haley is an establishment candidate that the establishment insiders believe they can sell to the America Firsters to some degree as an acceptable alternative to Donald Trump. Let's go to the phone. David and Florence, good morning. What's up, guys? Hey, David. I just, uh, yeah, I just uh, watched a little, the little bit on uh, Fox this morning with Nikki. But uh, uh, honestly, guys, to me, the uh, it, 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 I, I loved Donald Trump's uh, the way he did things. You know, whenever he was in office, I, uh, I voted for him. I voted for him not so much for Donald Trump, but because of the Supreme Court and. Uh, you know, uh, and he did exactly what I hoped he would do with the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, for that, uh, we'll, he'll be able to affect, uh, you know, uh, many, many years of decisions that come down. Uh, I have a lot of trouble with him this, you know, this, this go-round because uh, he'll be a one-term president. Uh, I'm sure that he'll get some things done, but I don't think he'll get as much done this go-around as he did last because everybody's got a bullseye on him now. Uh, I think this is probably more about Donald Trump's ego than it is the American and, the, you know, our, our country and and uh, what's best for our country. Bless his heart. I mean, uh, he is what he is. Uh, I think DeSantis is... Uh, you know, kind of like Trump in a lot of ways. He's he's got that pit bull's attitude, but DeSantis has got a leash on him. Where Donald Trump's just running the neighborhood, terrorizing the neighborhood. Uh, I would love to see DeSantis and Tim Scott team up and and run as a run a ticket together. I think they would be a great pair up. Uh, and uh, you know, just uh, your thoughts, Ken, because I know you love Donald Trump, but uh, he's he'd be a one term guy, and I, I just don't see it. Well, here's the here's the quandary. I mean, it's a, it's kind of an internal conflict. Let's do this. Let's take a break. Let's take a this will take a um, a few moments to explain. But think of as we take the break: Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. Those three figures will be instrumental in moving forward and helping shape the field as we head into summer. Back in a minute. So we don't know who else enters the equation. And right now, Ron DeSantis has not said yes to a run for the presidency in twenty. 24. I think he makes a decision probably March. I mean, I would imagine, I mean, I know he's got a, um, I mean, he's hired people. There's no doubt. He's not formed an exploratory committee. Um, I don't know how many consultants or advisors he has working for him. Um, the, the legislative session in Florida ends in, I think it's March. And you would expect DeSantis to be more active in, you know, national politics after he I mean, after I mean, he's got a job to do. He's governor of Florida. He's doing the job the best of his of his abilities. But here's the way I look at it this morning. You've got you've got I mean, these are the announced candidates and the non-announced candidates. Let's say DeSantis is considering a run. We know that to be the case, but he hasn't announced whether he's in or not. Tim Scott, from what I'm gathering, is considering a run. Um, it never hurts to consider a run to be president. What's the downside of thinking about considering uh, a run for the presidency. There is no downside. I mean, you can sell coloring books on Fox News and call yourself a former presidential candidate. But there's great (laughs) value in that. There really and truly is. I mean, it's silly to me, and it's a little bit shallow. Um, Well, it's infinitely shallow, but it is um, what it is. So Trump is the known commodity. There's no doubt. I mean, with Trump, you know what you get, right? I mean, he cuts both ways. 
He brings a lot of um, a lot of positivity and a lot of negativity. You, you get all of it. So like Joe Walsh and the Eagles, right? I mean, when sure. Glenn Fry said or Don Henley said, we wanted a rock and roll guitarist. We got one and a lot more when we got Joe Walsh. So if you want a political disruptor, you got one in Donald Trump. And the uniqueness of him being a former president. Correct. And, and I mean, he's but but even if Trump's not a former president, he's still unique. I mean, he's, he's more unique than normal because of that True. characteristic you just said. But we don't see many political candidates like Donald Trump. And, and we got to admit that it cuts both ways. I mean, th- th- there's a there's a uh, an ingredient of Trump that leads to bigger turnouts, to engaging a larger audience. But there's also an ingredient to Trump that turns some of the Republican voters off. We've seen that in action, guys. We know that about 15 percent of quote unquote establishment Republicans just aren't going to support Donald Trump. I mean, it, it, it drives me crazy because I think they're being a bit unpatriotic and allowing Joe Biden to win and Democrats to execute a more liberal agenda. But they have a right just like you and I do. So you've got Trump, the known political disruptor. You've got Nikki Haley, who the media and establishment-oriented um, influencers will try to convince you, the people, the America Firsters in particular, she's acceptable. She's not Trump. But she's not Chris Christie. She's not Mike Pompeo. She's not Mike Pence. That's how you got to sell Nikki Haley. She worked for the former president. She won as governor of South Carolina, a, uh, a female of Indian descent winning a southern state. You know she's got to be politically capable. So, so that's the hybrid. I don't believe the establishment can sell that to the American first voter. I think Nikki has always tried to have it both ways. I understand why you try to have it both ways. You endear yourself to a base by affiliating with Trump, but you make a bunch of money by saying grace with the establishment. And I think Nikki's made more money than she's ever made in her life. And I think she's done it not by embracing America first, but rather embracing some of the traditional um, focus groups of the, of the GOP. I don't think that sells. I think the, the America First voter are highly skeptical of Nikki Haley. Now, there will be a full court press in convincing you to be less skeptical. And there'll be a lot of ads and there'll be a campaign and it'll be somewhat effective. I don't think it's effective enough because I think Nikki tried to have it both ways. And I think most Trump voters believe that Nikki Haley tried to have it both ways. So if Nikki's not acceptable, who is? And the only alternative I can come up with is Ron DeSantis. I have seen a lot of people in my world that voted for Trump and will vote for Trump again unless DeSantis runs. And if DeSantis runs, they, they, they appreciate everything the former president has done. They don't have any ill will whatsoever with the former president. They just kind of want somebody younger, a little more acceptable, a little more likely to win in November 2024, a little more likely to sustain a political movement not about themselves, but, but about political issues and ideas and, and thoughts and processes. Um, and, and DeSantis seems to be best equipped to do that. I'll level with you guys. The reason I'm keeping my powder dry is Ron DeSantis. I mean, I want to hear what DeSantis has to say. Now, now Lindsey Graham decided not to. Henry McMaster couldn't decide not to. I mean, Henry's the governor of South Carolina because of Donald Trump. It's kind of interesting. Nikki Haley's a central figure in that. I mean, I got to believe there was a conversation shortly after Trump wins. Henry, what do you want? I, I, I don't want anything except be governor of South Carolina. If you find that lady over there something to do, 
then I'd, I'd be governor of South Carolina. And uh, so, so you got to believe that's how that conversation probably took place. <laughs> Sounds just like Well, it. I mean, Trump finds something for Nikki to do. Nikki becomes ambassador to the United Nations. That puts her on the national stage, so to speak. Um, adds, adds, kind of adds a feather in her cap. Trump demonstrates a willingness to, um, to embrace diversity. Here's a female of Indian descent that I put in a very prominent position in my administration. Uh, he got accused of being racist and misogynist and all these other sorts of things. But but I, I don't think Nikki squandered that opportunity because she ended up with a house in Hilton Head. It's hard to say she squandered. What have I said, guys? Money's the answer. Now what's, what's the question? The question? So, so, so Nikki did what was in her, you know, uh, monetarily-based uh, uh, interest, but... But but I think she made people skeptical of her. And and I, I think the ceiling is 12%, 15% for Governor Haley. That's just me personally. I could be wrong. Nikki could put together a crackerjack team. They could put together a campaign. Um, she's a politically talented person. I mean, you don't don't dispute that. I mean, Nikki is a, is a talent politically. She's good on the hustings. Um, she has a certain appeal and attractiveness about her. She's um, quick-witted. She's very focused on what her answers are. She doesn't make mistakes in the grind of a presidential campaign. That's a big deal. Nikki will not make an enforced error. But but I think she's already made the error that will cost her a potential presidency by trying to have a foot in both camps, and the Trumpsters just don't buy that. I think DeSantis can. And I think if DeSantis gets in, some of the establishment that, that are going to be for Haley and convince you not to be for Trump, they go, okay, Nikki, Nikki's not going to win. I mean, we think she's a good candidate, but she's not going to win. Can DeSantis win? And then the establishment begins trying to endear themselves. The biggest criticism I've heard of DeSantis is, is some of the people he runs with, some of the people he said complimentary things about. Well, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't run from certain groups of people. You, you've got to appreciate that the, I mean, how many times have we said we want the Republican Party to be big tent? We want it to be all-inclusive. We want a lot of different people to vote Republican. And and next thing you know, well, we want them to vote Republican, but we don't want DeSantis hanging around with them. We want them to vote Republican, but we don't want DeSantis to be tainted by, by you know, associating with those people. And I think we got to stop with that. I mean, there's no pure candidate. Trump is a political anomaly. Trump is a generational force. I didn't say talent, because I ain't so damn sure he's talented, but he is a force of nature without question. And, and, and he gets away with things that, that no other politician in my lifetime could possibly get away with. And how he's done it, political scientists will cover that for 50 years and try to understand how he could say bleeding out of her eyes or somewhere or wherever. I mean, when you say that, that's it. It's exit stage left. That's the mistake that cost you a political career. The political and presidential obituaries are full of people. I mean, uh, what's the guy's name? The former governor of Vermont who yelled after one of the fundraisers, a Howard Dean. Remember Howard oh, yeah. Dean? Ah, you know, and he's yeah. done. I mean, Trump said bleeding out of her eyes or wherever. And he goes up two points to the poll. <laughs> Howard Dean goes, ah, and he's crazy. He's a crazy man. We get right. a crazy man. Forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, he, he gets away with things. I mean, if Trump said, ah, everybody say, yeah, of course he said, ah. <laughs> I mean, he meant it too. Um, but, but I think that people have tired of that. People have... They still appreciate, and they're a little bit embarrassed to say that they, they, there's a little bit self-guilt here. You know, um, man, I hope DeSantis gets in because he gives us a better chance to win. He's a little bit more acceptable. 
But I don't think DeSantis is an establishment Republican. I think DeSantis has some establishment tendencies, but I think DeSantis, by and large, is a, is a change agent. He's a reformer. He's a, um, I mean, he's a, he's a much more accepted alternative to Trump than Nikki Haley, as far as I'm concerned. And as a former Trump supporter, still waiting to hear how the field shapes itself out, DeSantis is the only option I'd consider. Now, now I think I speak for a lot of people listening to my voice. I know I don't speak for everybody because two of you just texted me a second ago. You know, it's Trump or nobody. Well, I hope we can get over that. I mean, it can't be Trump or nobody. How do we win in November of 2024? And how do we execute a plan to not just disrupt American politics, but implement some sort of systematic approach to make America first the dominant political theory within the GOP? That's what I'm most interested in. And I get why J.D. Vance did what he did. When I read it, I'm like, oh, come on, J.D., wait. You know, wait and let's see what DeSantis does. But I understand it. I, I certainly understand it. J.D. Vance owes a lot of his political career thus far to Donald Trump. I mean, you, you got to pay the guy back that did what, what he did for you. I get Henry McMaster. I, I tell you this, and I mean this sincerely. I don't know if I were Trump if I'd let Lindsey Graham on my statewide steering committee. I mean, I really don't. I get that he's a, a noted politician. He is a, um, I mean, he's won election after election after election by big margins. So who am I to say, you know, be careful with Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is a U.S. senator. He is a, he is a, a major political voice in America today. But he represents one of the more America first states, and he's always at odds with America first voters. That's complex to me. That's complicated <laughs> well, is. to me. But it is, you know, what it is, so to speak. So, um, I mean, I get Henry. I get Russell. I mean, I get some of these other, you know, America first candidates in South Carolina. Uh, is Lindsey America first or not? Let me ask you this, Rev. If Trump is the extreme example of America first, and he is, and I'm questioning whether Nikki is sincere about her commitment, and I think she is, and we believe that DeSantis is a, a kind of a more acceptable alternative to Trump than, than, um, than is in the field today, where is Lindsey? Is Lindsey, <laughs> I wish I could what I mean, is Lindsey between DeSantis and, and Nikki? Is Lindsey between... What day of the week is it? Well, I mean, there, there you go. I mean, it, it's a complicated relationship. Is it the um, is it the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings? I mean, he's Trump's right-hand man. Is it the omnibus bill? He's, he's shaking hands with Chris Christie and John Kasich trying to make a deal with the Democrats. And, and that goes back to the complication of the relationship. But, but he's won statewide over and over and over again. And that's what Trump's after. How do I win the primary in South Carolina? Let's go to the phone. Here is John in Lamar. Morning, John. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, I got a question, Ken. You you uh, you were up there with Nikki um, in the state house, and uh, I was a big supporter of uh, Nikki for a long time. But um, I'm a Trump supporter as well, and I think either Trump or DeSantis, either one would be pretty good for office. But I don't understand Nikki's point of, of doing that because, to me, Nikki Haley is the one that started all this woke culture council culture stuff when she took the the flag off the state house i might be wrong but i think that was the first thing that got canceled out and then everything went haywire after that as far as canceling this and canceling that and doing that and the other and to me she's the one to kick that off so i don't see how anybody that's a true american first person could support that all right. Have a good day, guys. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. I don't think many America Firsts will support Nikki Haley. 
I mean, the, that, that's kind of the point I'm making. Now, the, the, the flag issue with David Beasley, I mean, David began that journey. Uh, Nick, Nikki addressed it to some degree when they, I mean, they took the flag off the top of the state house where you could hardly see it and put it in a monument off by Gervais Street where everybody could help but see it. I mean, it was in a much more prominent location after the relocation. And the, the only thing I'll say about Nikki, guys, she is a very disciplined and ambitious politician. I'm not saying that negatively, not not at all. I mean, politicians by their nature need to be pretty ambitious. You know, how do I win? I mean, that's got to always be in the back of your mind. Um, who do I gain support of? So there's, you know, ambition is a natural force in politics. Nikki is unbelievably ambitious. She's unbelievably disciplined. Therefore, you can't underestimate what impact she could have on the race because of those two characteristics alone. You take ambition, discipline, and talent, and you can get a long way down the road. I just believe Ron DeSantis is a more tolerable option to Donald Trump than Nikki Haley. Remember, we talk about this um this linear graph. Trump's on one extreme, and you know, let, let's say John Kasich is on the other extreme. You know, how much closer to Trump is that? Is that you know, uh, can the America First world tolerate Nikki Haley? I don't think so. I mean, I know they can't stomach Chris Christie, literally or figuratively. Um, I, I, I know they can't. I know they can't deal with John Kasich, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. I mean, th- those people have zero percent chance to win. I don't think Governor Haley has a zero percent chance to win. I mean, I think Pence has a zero percent chance to win. I think Pompeo has a zero percent chance to win. I think Nikki's chance to win is somewhere in the the single digits. But but could she? utilize that discipline and ambition and talent and begin to ascend of course she could i mean it happens every election cycle take a break back in a few you know it's going to be interesting when trump ran in 16 he was a kind of a novelty act to begin with i mean nobody took it seriously um he had a lot of name id obviously he was a um a polarizing personality but he goes into the 24 primary the favorite i'm the odd zone favorite in fact, of all the, the odds makers in London, Donald Trump is most likely to be our next president. Now, it's not a 50% chance. Uh, last I checked, it was 26.7%, which is a one in four chance uh, to be president. Joe Biden's at about 25-ish, so it's kind of a jump ball between Biden and Trump. Um, DeSantis is at 20%, and no other candidate or potential candidate is in double figures. I think Nikki's at about 29 or 3%, somewhere thereabout. But, but crazy things happen in campaigns. And Nikki Haley has not been vetted at the national level. I mean, there, there are some issues there. Ron DeSantis has not been vetted at the national level. I'm sure there'll be some issues there. And what I hope Republicans don't fall for, and I don't think we will, because when I read some of the polling on media reporting, it encourages me. I mean, I've said before, and I'll say it again, and I'll stand by this comments. Our owners are in town, so I know I'm confident when I say this. Um... If I don't do anything on the radio except one thing, I hope this is the one thing that I successfully accomplished. I want you to be highly skeptical of your government. I want you to not trust much of what your government says to you. I mean, if I look at the objective of Wake Up Carolina, I mean, it's to entertain, it's to gain an audience, it's to generate revenue. I mean, there are a lot of um, byproducts of hosting a radio show in the morning. But my sincere intent... Every single morning I have the honor of sitting behind this microphone or standing at times is to make you question 
the motivations of government, the sincerity of government, um, the, the honesty of government. And when I looked at some of the, um, some of the recent data, it was encouraging to me when we, um, when we looked at what is the biggest problem facing America today. And historically it's been, you know, in, in a period like today, it'd be inflation, uh, immigration, uh, the economy in general, unifying the country is always something politicians say has to happen. I mean, it's imperative that we unify behind, you know, the, um, Ah, the 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 binary choice we have to lead our nation. Democrats get their chance for a little while, and then Republicans get their chance, and then we have you know um, divided government, and both parties have somewhat of a role and responsibility. Uh, we talked a lot about homelessness, you know, on the airwaves yesterday and the day before. Um, crime and violence is still a big part of the national discussion. Um, so some of the, we talked a lot about ethical, moral, family decline, some of the cultural issues that are front and center in America today, but, but none of those issues do the American people believe are more problematic than the government. And I think as that number goes up, we become a better nation. It's, it's a 21% of Americans today believe that the government's poor leadership is the biggest problem facing America. Has there been a time in recent history where that I don't was ever e- remember even that on the radar? I, mean, I, I don't ever remember that being That's the case. That's why that was so interesting when I saw it. And it's a Gallup poll. But, I mean, so when, but when you look at it, and uh, let, let, number two is inflation. Well, what caused inflation? The government. government. I mean, the, the, the quantitative easing and, you know, the Fed making rates zero for a decade. I mean, that led to rampant inflation, the distortion of the marketplace. What, what do we say here? You ready? Macroeconomic stimulus leads to inflationary pressures, not some of the time, not most of the time, but all of the time. So when you look at inflation, immigration, the economy in general, unifying the nation, um, race relations, crime and violence, homelessness, poverty, hunger, I mean, there, there's a myriad of things that resonate with people and they respond as a reflection of, but the government has caused the majority of these problems. I mean, why do we have an immigration crisis in America today? The government has laws on the book of securing the border. We have immigration laws. We don't enforce them. And we don't enforce it because the government has a friendly relationship with corporate America. I mean, I'm one of the few Republicans that will admit that. I mean, the, the Republicans in government, now the Democrats, because it's elitist. It's credentialism. I mean, it's those in charge. doesn't matter if you're an R or a D. It's a uniparty is what we like to refer to it as. Well, I mean, they've made a dirty deal with big business and corporate America, and the distortion of labor is a good way to um, to make a business more profitable. So when you look at inflation, immigration, the economy, unifying the nation, and you, you're basically admitting that our government has poor leadership, and the reason that these issues are so prevalent and front and center on people's mind is the government doesn't know how to address any of these issues. You can't get rich and do your job in government. I'm sorry, you can't. You can't sell your soul to a special interest or a, or a moneyed interest and do your job on behalf of the American people because the American people's interests very often don't line up with big business. And if you give an R or a D a chance to choose over the, the special interest or the interest of the American people in recent time, 99.9% of the time, they choose the moneyed interest. Let's go to the phone. Here is Joey in Florence. Morning, Joey. Hey, Ken. You there? Good morning. Morning. Okay. I have a question. I'm not real excited about the Nikki Haley's or any of the others that are going to throw their hats, you know, in the, in the 
up there to go on the primaries. But I had a question about when are we going to start choosing, when would Trump and anybody else start choosing the VP? And wouldn't it be nice if we had a Trump DeSantis ticket for we could possibly have uh, conservatives in there for the next 12 years? Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. That's always been the dream team of the America Firster. A Trump president, a DeSantis vice president. I just don't think Ron DeSantis, it's not in his best interest to do that. I mean, DeSantis has to look at the calculus and decide whether now is the right time. The one thing DeSantis has that Trump does not is time. I mean, Ron DeSantis is what, 38, 39 years old? Am I right, Rev? Somewhere around 40? I think he's in his uh, mid to upper 40s. Okay, so he's 45 or 6 or 7. I mean, he's got a circuit or a cycle to wait. I mean, he he could wait until 2028 and run. Um, Let's let's hypothetically say Trump wins the primary, loses the general. I'm just for argument's sake. Uh, DeSantis can run in 28 for an open presidential seat. That's probably a little more enticing if you sit where DeSantis sits today. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Amber in Florence. Good morning. Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for all y'all do. I appreciate listening to y'all. Um, I've recently started paying attention to politics. And I, I, the 17th Amendment, um, I mean, I kind of feel like government should be more localized. The Seventeenth Amendment is it wrong? Should <laughs> uh, do you think it contributes to our federal government's like unawareness of citizens' actual problems? You're talking about the amendment that allows the the voters to cast direct directly for U.S. senators. Correctly. And before the Seventeenth Amendment, senators were chosen by state legislatures, if I'm not mistaken. So you'd rather see it. Where state legislatures chose the senator instead of we the people. Well, I just think that I mean we the people vote on our local things. If if we're paying attention to our local things, then we're going to vote on it. And if we're voting, the you know I feel like that it would they would vote the way we would want to vote. I hope. <laughs> I got you, Amber. So so thank you for the call. Appreciate it. So if if Amber's point is. If voters were informed and and held responsible for voting state legislators in place, the state legislators' vote should reflect the general interest of the when, – when they vote for the senator, the U.S. senator, that should reflect the will of the people. You've, you've kind of delegated that authority to members of the, um, of the state legislature. I mean, I can go both ways. I mean, if I were a paid lobbyist, I mean, I could lobby – abolish the 17th amendment or i could lob you no 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 the people have absolutely um the right to vote you know it's kind of interesting when we go to this data that i've got in my hand this is gallup's numbers uh, when they say 21 percent of americans believe that the government's poor leadership is, is the biggest problem in america today what percentage of americans believe the government's doing a good job i mean that would be an interesting number to me if it's more than three percent we're screwed <laughs> I mean, if it's if it if that number is north of three percent, I mean, there are three percent of people out there who can't get out of their own way, and those three percent would probably, I don't know, Rev, um, by default. What's the percentage of the population that works for the federal government? But I mean, when you think about this, guys, about and, and here's where I get a bit insulting: the average IQ of America is what one hundred three ish. 
maybe 105-ish. That means half of all Americans have a below average IQ. But the math simply suggests that. So politicians know that. Um, I'm no rocket scientist, but I'd like to believe I'm on the good side of the bell curve when it comes to, to average intelligence. I'm not one extreme example of IQ. But when I read some of the uh, some of the political theater and I and I listen to some of the political speeches and ads and and some of the nuanced debates, how do you not see through that? I mean, if you're a reasonable, if you're reasonably intelligent and have a an ability to discern to some degree, how do you fall for that? I mean, how do you fall for what Chuck Schumer said yesterday about the Biden train is leaving the station and that's getting in its way? I mean, how do you, I mean, how does every American not say, stop with that foolishness, Senator, stop with that nonsense, but no, there's a certain percentage that believe he's sincere and genuine. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning, sir. Uh, so, Ken, this, this, uh, this education level and uh, the, the debate about uh, whether Americans uh, trust their government. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny to me, like, you talk about this. Um, I mean, you see what DeSantis is doing in the schools in Florida, taking all the, all the books out of the libraries. Whoa, okay whoa, whoa. He's taking all the books out all of all the, the libraries? In the elementary schools, yes, he is. Wow, that's different I mean, than the. But, the, but, I, mean, I, but but I don't I don't like I said I don't watch MSNBC, so I don't know what they're reporting. But but I've I've seen no report in mainstream news that says he's taken all of the books out of all of the libraries, which is what you just said. Yeah, I mean they're they're boxing them up, they're covering them, you know. Until all the books out of all the libraries, you believe that, Jeff? And, and, and until they they can they can be gone through by the new laws that Ron DeSantis is passing, the duly elected the governor of Georgia, of uh, Florida, yep, elected in a landslide by the people of Florida, landslide, yeah, landslide without question. Okay, uh, he, he won by fifty thousand votes the year before. He definitely won more over Chris Chris uh, or uh, Charlie Chris, but. So let's let's just talk about you've got you've got Turning Point USA actively advocating not sending your kids to college. Do you send your kids to college? I sent one of three. I didn't go to college. And the most successful people in my world didn't go to college. Okay, but but I mean, like, is college a bad thing? No, not at all. Okay, you got Donald Trump saying we love the poorly educated. That's a real quote, right? I think he did say that. Yeah, I think there's some sarcasm associated, okay. but 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 you know, um, oh, sure, sure, it's it's sarcasm. You know, air quote those because he he's serious. Um, Says who, Jeff? I mean, do you do, do you declare? I mean, I want to make sure I get you straight. You know what Trump means, and nobody else in the world does. I mean, every time you call him the show, let me finish. Let me finish. The insinuations you make every time you call into the show is that you know exactly what Trump meant when he said it, where he said it, and how he said it. And anybody that doesn't believe Trump meant exactly what you said is a complete and total fool. That sounds real arrogant and foolish. 
for you to suggest that, Jeff. But you insinuate that every time with a with a, a slight chuckle under your voice. And it's insulting to people who believe that Trump was being unbelievably sarcastic when, when a guy who went to UPenn, uh, Warden School of Business or Finance, says, I love the uneducated. You believe that he meant that verbatim. Uh, I mean, what do you do? I mean, do you take somebody at their word or do you just like if you disagree with it? Or you realize, boy, that wasn't a really good statement. Let's chalk it up to he's joking. I, I would just hate to live in a world where we took everybody at their word every moment of every day. I, I, I would that, that would be a uh, miserable world to live in. And I'm glad that, that you, you can find you some happiness me? and solace in that world because I just couldn't. Are you kidding me? If Biden makes a gaffe, he's got dementia. Trump literally comes out and says things. And we, we can say, oh, he's just joking. When Biden makes a gaffe, give me an example of a gaffe that doesn't reflect some sort of um, cognitive impairment. Uh, I, I'm just saying, like, he, the man has a speech impairment. He's older. But but immediately, he's 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 got dementia. No, I mean, I said he, it seems to me that Joe Biden has a pretty serious cognitive impairment that causes him to be confused and say a lot of things that don't make any sense. So we're to believe that Trump is being sarcastic when he says things like with no, with absolute, you know, he absolutely says them. Well, let me ask we're, you a question. What's wrong with, let, let's, let's do better than this. What's wrong with Trump saying, I love the uneducated? Do the uneducated not deserve to be loved? They, they do need to be loved, but that's the kind of voter he, he actively... What kind of voter is that, Jeff? What kind of voter is the uneducated voter? I would be an uneducated voter. I know as much about this world as you've ever thought about knowing. Uh, listen, if you've ever... No, watched, no, no, no. I'm an uneducated voter by your criteria. I know more about what makes the world go around. No, let me say this again. I want to be arrogant for you. I've forgotten more about what makes the world go around than you know. But I'm an uneducated voter. I'll tell you this. I need to be choosing presidents and leaders of the world a lot quicker than Jeff does. And that's your prerogative to believe that. Sure. I believe it with every fiber of my body because we've had multiple conversations and your worldview freaks me out on a lot of fronts. I'm glad people like you aren't in charge of major government operations or endeavors. You're you're the guy who's going to back like candidates that that call Trump out and said he should not be running the government, but then changed their mind when it was politically expedient. Those are the people you go in with every day. I know I, I, I've learned I've learned in life you better be smart enough to change your mind if conditions on the ground change. I mean, to, to me, it's ridiculous to say I believe this all of the time and I don't ever believe this conditions in the real world change. And judgments need to reflect the changing of those real conditions in a very real world. So you can call it flip-flopping. You can call it selling your soul. You can call it not being committed to anything. I call it accepting reality where reality is. Okay, so, so but, but you just said the word flip-flop. It was, it was not okay for John Kerry to change his mind, but these guys can act like chameleons, and you're okay with well, it. Who are these guys? Who are, you, who are these guys you're talking about that change their mind? Okay, Pompeo, okay. Nikki Haley, um, Mark Rubio. Uh, I've said every time I, I would never vote Rubio for president. I would never vote, vote Pompeo for president. I would never vote Nikki Haley for president. The only two political actors on stage today 
that I would consider are Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. But but listen to Ron. You know what's coming with Ron DeSantis. I hope an announcement he's running for president. Right, but he's going to absolutely tear Trump up. He would have to in a primary. I mean, that's what primary. Then, I mean, that, you, you can't win a primary without going after one of the, one of your critical opponents. Yeah. So, so when you, when you talk about the flexibility, it's okay for Republicans to fle- be flexible and flip flop. But if a Democrat does it, it's not. Where? Well, I mean, what, what are we? I don't understand the. I mean, where, where are we? I mean, we, we were talking about uneducated voters. And now we're talking about flip-flopping. I mean, what exactly is the, the context of the conversation? And are you, you're either losing me or I'm losing you. Well, and, and, and we, we got off on a tangent. I'll, I'll just say this. Education, as we look on the world stage, okay, is important for the United States to excel, correct? Correct. Okay. Do you feel like the Republican Party and the America First platform and the attack on the school systems is good for America. The attack on the school systems—that's the first I've heard of that. I think there okay. is a—I well, think there is a mindset in America today that believes parents have been excluded from participating in what sort of education their kid receives. Ron DeSantis is empowering parents, and and I don't think that's an attack on school districts. I think a parent deserves to understand with 100% accuracy, what sort of curriculum, what sort of educational experience, what sort of value there is in how their kids are being educated, you would call that an attack on the school system. I would call it a vetting of the liberal groupthink that has dominated public education for the last half century. I'm not, I'm not actually talking about that, that but I, I, will, uh, I could address that. What I'm talking about is the school voucher program. Do you... You, you know that that just is a means to defund the public school systems, correct? Uh, it would have a negative impact that, on public schools, of course. Okay. In, in what communities do you think that would have the biggest In the economically impact? distressed communities. Okay. And, and do you think that fundamentally, what do you think is the biggest problem with the public school system? The biggest problem with the public school system is a lack of competition. I'm going to say it's the parents' involvement, just like you do. I would argue it's the lack of parental involvement, the the lack of the nuclear family. How many kids are going to school today not ready to learn because of the conditions at home not involving or including a mother and father? And we totally agree on that. But what do you think the school voucher, what do you think the vetting of books does to solve any of that? But, but it, it introduces competition. I mean, if the, if, the, if the money follows the kid and the parent of the child has an option, you introduce competition into the marketplace of education. Jeff has a kid. Jeff has struggled financially. Ken has a kid. Ken has struggled financially. Ken can't live in the neighborhood he desires to live in. Therefore, his kid is stuck in this school that is socioeconomically challenged and doesn't provide a good education. Certainly, you don't want that kid to be trapped in in that situation or circumstance where they're forced to go to a school that's not providing an adequate education. You want that kid or that parent of that child to have an option to send that kid to a place where they receive a better education. And, he, and here's where here, here's the fundamental problem: public schools don't perform as well as private schools. 
And I'm going to tell you, it's not the level of the education. It's the involvement of the parent. And even if you give somebody a voucher and you can send them to a private school, if the parent's still not engaged and still doesn't have the time or the resources to devote to raising that kid and helping that kid when he's at home with the homework, guess what? You're not going to bring the kid up. You're going to bring the private school down. Yeah, but see, I disagree with, I mean, you, you said a, a general statement. You said public schools are not as good as private schools. I don't buy that. There are some public no, no, schools. No, no, no. Uh, I, I'm saying the student that's not getting the resources and help at home is 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 why the public schools are the way they are. So so, so you're, you're basically, I mean, you and I are agreeing that the biggest contributor to failing schools and success in public edu- education is socioeconomic. It's, it's, it's parent involvement. It's socioeconomic. The, yes, I agree. To, to, totally agree with that. How do we get the parent more involved than allowing them to choose where their kid goes to school? I mean, isn't that the ultimate parent, parental involvement? But isn't that just a placebo? Do you what? think they're then going to start doing homework with their kid? Uh, I think they all, they, they, they're more encouraged. They get some hope. They're around kids and teachers who care more fundamentally about their education, uh, how they're, the, you know, their, their life outcomes, their, their eventual employment, gainful employment would be a part of this. I mean, it, I, I think you and I will agree with this, Jeff. There's, there's not a silver bullet. There, there's not a magic potion. But, but, but I think Ron DeSantis has always argued that parental control, involvement, empowerment is better than bureaucratic agencies led by teachers' unions deciding what the curriculum is and how schools are run. I'm on DeSantis's team when it comes to that. Well, I, I, I just say that it's, um, it, it's, it's disheartening to see some of the things. I don't, I don't think uh, addition by subtraction is ever going to really work. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you're, you know, taking the money away from the schools that need it isn't going to help them. Fair enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the call. Got, got a little tested to begin with, but we settled down and uh, and had well, a. We um, had to go through the butt Trump part of the call. Well, I mean, once we got past Trump, which we always do, and I just, it bothers me that the never Trumper believes he knows Trump better than anybody on the planet. The, the never Trumper will never understand the, the very complicated relationship between Trump and his voters. I mean, they they just they don't try to understand it. They don't try to explore it. They don't try to to make heads or tails of it. Um, there's some of this that is non-intellectual. I mean, so, some of the Trump, Trump support is irrational, but people are emotional. We're not Vulcans, just not a Vulcan. I'm not a Vulcan. None of you are Vulcans. There is an, there's a, there's a raw emotion associated with why you cast a ballot in favor of candidate A, B, C, D. Why do you vote Republican? Why do you vote Democrat? Why, why do you think liberal? Why do you think conservative? Um, some of it is ca- kind of genetic. Uh, a lot of it is events and experiences that have shaped your worldview. But, but emotions are a big part of why you vote for a particular candidate or not. And the never Trumper believes that they have a understanding of Trump and his support. And it's shallow. And it's, um, it's unserious. And it's, it, it's dangerous. No, I think it's, I mean, it is emotional. There, there's no doubt about it. It's emotional. But to suggest that all Trump voters are dumb and don't think things through. Uh, I'm a Trump voter. I mean, I'll go on the record. I'm not dumb, and I think things through. And if Ron DeSantis doesn't get in the race, it's clear to me that Donald Trump is the best candidate to be president in 2024. DeSantis gets in, 
I think there's a, a fair debate to be had about that. Take a break. Back in a few. Welcome back. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. All right. Good morning. Uh, uh, wonderful show. I, it was just absolutely fascinating to uh, listen to the art, acumen, and uh, passion on full display there. I, th- I really enjoyed that. But I've got to say this about your show. Uh, that the, the show you had yesterday with uh, that uh, uh, Belarusian woman mm-hmm. that was uh, that was one of the more informative and knowledgeable statements I've heard the whole time about this Ukraine uh, situation and the Cold War situation. Uh, if you could have her back again, I, I would enjoy it. I don't know if, uh, about other people, but uh, it was certainly informative from my point of view. And, but you've got an excellent show there, Ken, and I love the way you struck to the uh, core of the argument about education when you uh, said that the single thing that would make the schools better is competition, and um, that would be uh, putting the putting the money on the backpack of the child. I think that would uh, bring up the level of education in uh, schools automatically. Oh, uh, and if it was maintained over a number of uh, years, we would have superior schools in no time in South Carolina. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that, Mike. Thanks for the kind words. Um, yeah, it was very interesting yesterday. Dr. Alina Eskridge Koshmash uh, was our, our guest uh, from, from Belarus, had a lot of history in Russia, understood the Cold War, um, kind of agreed with me in some places and disagreed with me in others. I mean, she's a scholar. I'm not. You would expect uh, me to get some of that wrong, or maybe she got it wrong. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, the arrogance of the uneducated. Well, the arrogance of the That's what go. it is with Jeff. Jeff's go. problem is not with me being uneducated. <laughs> Jeff's problem is the arrogance of the uneducated to believe that they rival or their opinions deserve consideration as some of the uh, some of the educated do. Uh, what else did Mike touch on? I'm, I'm rambling about here because he had said some, something that I wanted to um, I want to revisit. Well, he's talking about education it, and and competition. Yep. I think of this. So I go to a frozen yogurt store and I have a hundred choices. I mean, if I choose the wrong, let's say I choose vanilla mint over natural vanilla. I get walnuts instead of the M&Ms. It isn't a big deal, right? Damn, I wish Good I'd choice. gotten the natural vanilla with the M&Ms instead of the, the you know, the, the, the vanilla mint and the, and the walnuts. But I, I endure. I proceed. Education is one of the most critical components of a of a person's existence. What sort of education do you receive at an early age has a lot to do with where you end up in life. I'm not saying it's everything because we know that kids have come from very distressed areas and excelled academically and achieved, you know, financially and influentially. I mean, we know there's stories out there, but they're rare. So, so we can go to a yogurt stand and buy a hundred different kinds of yogurt, but I got to send my kid to the school you tell me I got to send him to, despite you admitting that that school has minimal standards. It's minimally adequate. So I wake up every morning with the most precious thing in my life, my kid, and you're telling me because you decided to draw the lines here that I've got to send my kid there to build the foundations of how he lives the rest of his life, and you yourself, Mr. and Mrs. Government, have admitted that that school is minimally adequate. How can we tolerate that? 
I mean, how can we allow that to be normal? No, the parent needs options. And when the parent has options, schools compete with one another. That kid has $6,784 pinned to their backpack. That's our per pupil in South Carolina. Pretty close to that. It, it ebbs and flows. It goes up and it goes down. But, but you're telling me that I don't have a right as a parent to pin that tax money that I invest in the educational system in South Carolina by? I don't have a right to decide. I don't want my kid going to that minimally adequate school that you drew the boundaries of. And because I can't live in the right neighborhood, because I don't make enough money to, um, you know, to, to, to function as a, a member of an alternate society, I got to do this. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's abhorrent. I mean, it can't be that way. We've got to allow competition in the marketplace of education. And the only way to get there is to allow parents to choose where their kids will be educated. Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Morning, Williams. Hey, good morning. Um, I want to ask you about that. Um, ben Crump, you know who I'm talking about? The lawyer? I do. He's suing Red uh, DeSantis. He put in a lawsuit against him. Yes, him for what? What reason was, did he did that? Ben Crump believes that the, the, the Florida educational system needs to teach critical race theory through the lens of racism. Ron DeSantis does it. Ron DeSantis believes that our educational system does not be centered on the fact that all of our nation's institutions are racist and they function to maintain the dominance of white people over people of color in society. That's what Crump is arguing, that DeSantis should allow critical race theory to be normalized and taught in public education, and DeSantis says no. No, no, no. If we listen to Ron DeSantis, he's going to put black people back to the 1930s. He's a bone racist. Okay, I got one more thing to say to you. I look at the show of Meet the Press Sunday, Chuck Todd, and your boy Jim. <laughs> he my, 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 boy, boy, my Jim. boy Jim Jordan. He made him look like a used car player. I don't think he's Todd lying. looked that bad, Williams. I mean, I mean, Todd lied. looked, hey. He Jim Jordan. He called Jim Jordan lie after lie. Even Jim Jordan had to laugh. I found, thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. I found it interesting that, that Jordan was invited to meet the press and accepted Crazy. the invite. But uh, to me, he clearly got the best of Chuck Todd. I mean, Chuck Todd hosts to meet the press. is there to be a journalist, but he became an antagonist. I mean, it was obvious. And, and I think what Jordan did was... I mean, he went in there trying to demonstrate, I'm a Republican politician. I mean, there's no doubt about it. People know where I'm coming from. I mean, I'm going to the chair judiciary, and I'm going to chair another oversight committee, and I'm going after the Bidens. Chuck Todd was there to ask legitimate questions, but he became um, confrontational. He became combative in nature because, once again, he took on the role not as a journalist, but rather a political opponent. Now, now going back to what, what um, Williams said about Ron DeSantis being a racist, I don't have any idea. If Ron DeSantis is a racist, he may be, he may not be, but the debate, the legal squabble in, um, in, in higher education in Florida today, and, and the reason that DeSantis is basically making illegal diversity inclusion or diversity, equity, and inclusion is because, and I'm not talking about DEI, Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, we said it before, uh, but it really is critical race theory. The, the state of Florida and its public education system, higher education in particular, want to make critical race theory a big part of its teachings. 
And DeSantis says that that is, um, I mean, that, that, that's not part of how we educate young people, that the, um, the centering your education on the idea that racism is systemic. I mean, that's the different word there. It's not that racism exists. Of course it does. But, but Crump is arguing that racism is systemic in our nation's institutions, and they function primarily to maintain the dominance of white people in society. Uh, yeah, racism is prevalent. Racism is real. Racism exists. But, but racism is not systemic in our nation's institutions. In fact, if anybody is systemically biased against, it would probably be the white male. I mean, in today's culture, right now as we speak, if you're a white male, it's less likely that you get that job in government because they have some other measurement or quota of which they're obligated to meet. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Susan in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. I would like to chime in for your debate between Jeff and Ken. I am a retired educator in Florence one and there is way more than what you two are discussing about educating the children and it's black and white so we can't make a distinction we have to look at the poverty and what comes along with poverty single parents young mothers uneducated mothers and children come into the system not prepared it doesn't matter if we put five billion dollars on the backpack of the children. It doesn't matter. And along with all of this poverty, white and black comes behavior. And the school system does not want to look at behavior. I have taught where there have been kids who had some disabilities, behavior uh, problems, and teachers would have to take care of that, those problems without any help. It, and teachers can't teach if you're running after a kid and trying to take care of their behavior. And there's no place to put these kids who need more help. And it's, you're talking about how much money follows the kid and whether or not they go to public school in their neighborhood or to a private school. You take this problem child and you put them into the private school and the money will follow that child. That, that private school, when they demand behavior, that's proper for school. If that child doesn't come up to the level, they'll kick that kid out and they'll go back to their school. So why are schools in poverty neighborhoods, white and black, not fulfilling their obligations in educating the children? Because all of these things that go along with the neighborhood keeps teachers from teaching. Thank you, ma'am. Well explained. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I can't pass a law that governs public education that forces a female to get married before she has a kid. I can't pass a law for man and woman to not get divorced. I believe, and I think the evidence is empirical and inescapable, I believe that kids perform better academically when they come from a home with a mother and father. Traditional Kids raised in traditional families outperform those who aren't. On average, I didn't say every kid, on average, that, that's the case. But, but as a school board member or a local legislator, I can't pass a law that says you as a single female can't have a kid. You as a man and a woman who've gotten married can't get divorced. So I've got to accept the limitations of my responsibility. What, what I'm responsible for is the confines of the educational system. 
and and when that when that when that single mom wants best for her kid, I can't address the single mom that doesn't give a rat's rear end. I mean that that's that's a societal problem. We know the decline of marriage. We know the decline of, of morality in America. Uh, you know, but once again, I'm not in charge of that. I can't do anything about that. My responsibilities are the confines of the educational system. And when that parent who is single but cares about their kid and wants their kid to receive a better education, I've got to do my best to provide an opportunity for that kid. The, the parent that sends the kid to school ill-equipped to learn, not interested in achieving, but because of the breakdown of the family and some of these um, you know, socioeconomic conditions these kids are raised in, I'm not in charge of that. I can't address that. I have strong opinions of that, and if I were king of the world, I'd fix it. But you didn't elect me king of the world. You elect me to look after the school system, and, and I want to do my dead-level best of that. So a single parent or a socioeconomic challenge parent who has a kid who wants to go to school and learn, and that parent understands my kid's life will be a lot better if they receive a quality education, that's the person I care about. That's the one I'm considering as my priority. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Roger in Coward. Morning, Roger. Good morning, fellas. How are y'all? Morning, Roger. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Hear you just fine. Okay, uh, I'm driving through the big town of Scranton, and sometimes I have lost calls driving through Scranton. So if we do, you know, just blame it on the geography here. You know, uh, I had to call and compliment the last lady a little bit, Ken, uh, because I understand exactly what she's talking about. And it, being from, private, from public and private school, I had a little bit of work in both. Uh, I can tell you, I don't know the answer to it, and I'm not here to be critical of administrators, really. I kind of understand the pressure that they're under. Uh, but the bottom line is there has to be uh, some kahunas to get those kids out of the classroom, no matter what their issue is, whether they're black, white, come from rich families, poor families, or wherever, if they cause disturbance. They need to be removed from that uh, environment so that the others can learn. And I, and I don't know the answer to it because, like I said, administrators, they get pressure to keep kids in class so they don't have to deal with parents coming in and raising, you know, heck about the fact that you sent my child to the office and you're sending him home now and i got to deal with him and I don't want to deal with him, so I sent him to school for you to deal with him. <laughs> and then on the other side of the issue, you got private schools. The parents are paying for it. They feel like they've got more of a say than what they ought to have in how my child's treated if he disrupts the classroom, too. So it's it's both things. I'll recall one instance I had many years ago, and this was a coaching issue. <laughs> I had a lady, prominent lady. This was on the on the good side of town, you would call it. And the the kid was a good kid, um, caused me no problems at all uh, as far as practice and games, and I would put him in when the game was decided one way or the other. He wasn't a very good athlete, and he knew that. But he actually, his mama came in and sat down with me and thought he ought to play more like most parents do. Uh, but she actually brought the point up. She said, well, and this was this tells you how long ago it was. She made a comment. She said, well, I know Carol Campbell. And it was it was all I could do 
not to just absolutely laugh in the woman's face. I mean, I'm thinking, you're telling me you know the governor of this state like, like I care and like he cares whether your child plays middle school basketball or not. I mean, the arrogance of somebody to bring that up, and all she did was embarrass her son uh, because, you know, he felt bad about it. But, yeah, there's got to be a way to have positive parental uh, input and not negative parental input. And you need to dis, you need to get rid of those folks that continually cause problems. I can't help it if you come from a single home. I can't help it if you come from the wrong side of the tracks. But you can't stay here and cause a problem. That's well explained. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, I can't rem- I can't imagine a former governor caring if your kids playing enough Little League basketball or not, but maybe I'd be surprised by that. The, the point I try to make, and, and Roger kind of illustrated it better than I could because he's a teacher. He's been in the classroom in public and private schools. Society has suggested, almost demanded of education to inherit the dysfunction and problems of the nuclear family. We know that kids do better with a mom and dad. We know that. I mean, that's undeniable, indisputable. We also know that people get divorced and people get pregnant before they should. And people have kids that they're not responsible or mature enough to take care of. So if I'm in charge of a school district, I don't care where that kid came from. I mean, it's not my job. I'm not obligated to better understand the socioeconomic dynamic of why so many people are having kids out of wedlock. And, and, and why so many fathers are missing in action. I, you know, that's something I mean, I'm interested in that. I'm curious about it. But it's my job to allow kids to be better educated. And if a kid comes from a from a situation in life that that, that he comes to school not interested in learning, but, but not only him not interesting, he becomes disruptive to the other's ability to learn, I can get rid of him. I think as a school system, you have a responsibility to, to, to curry favor for the kids that are there to learn. It's unfortunate. It's sad. It's tragic. You wish it weren't the case. But but once again, a school system, it's, it's not their job to accept the dysfunction and disparity of society. The school district is charged with educating young people. And if kids come to school not ready to learn, and worse than that, disrupting those who are, they need to be removed from, from the system, period. I mean, it reforms school. Some some alternative educational opportunities. I mean, it's got to be an answer. But but they can't they can't be in that classroom, and teachers can't be afraid to deal with those kids differently. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. A couple of callers are on the phone. Let's go there. Carol and Marion. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Um, so I uh, I was curious about Jeff's rant. Um, so I looked up the, uh, the Florida schools taking the books out of the libraries and it kind of shows how ignorant the liberals can be because it's classroom libraries where the teachers have to catalog their books to determine if they comply or not with, uh, HB 1467. Um, and that is I got this it's on cnn.com um and that says that library materials must be free of pornography and prohibited material under the law suited to student needs and their ability to comprehend the material presented and appropriate for the grade level and age group so it's not like they're taking all the books out of all the libraries jeff um it's 
And the teachers are also given the opportunity, the option to box up their classroom library books or cover them up if they don't or won't catalog their books. And all it is, is it's just like the school libraries. School libraries books are cataloged, so all they have to do is really pull whatever titles are deemed um, not appropriate. And the, um, so the teachers are just doing the same thing. Well, I mean, the, the, the bill, I mean, I, I've read the bill. I've actually read this. It's a House bill. It is uh, 1467. She said I'll take her word at it. I don't know it. But it was, um, it was revisited in the Senate. The Senate added some language about establishing term limits for school board members. But, but they basically are forcing school boards to maintain these lists on their websites and parents can require certain meetings relating to instructional material about what their kids are being taught. In other words, is my eight-year-old being told about oral sex, you know, in the fifth grade? I mean, that, that's the, it's not taking, but I mean, no, nobody believed what Jeff says. I mean, that ignorant, gullible, you know, MSNBC. Back in a minute. So that was a makeup from yesterday. I had REO Speedwagon and Electric Light Orchestra <laughs> confused with another, one another. So Rev walks in and says, we're playing a song today. I said, yeah. He said, we play ELO. Yes, let's play REO today. ELO, <laughs> REO, you know, hair bands of the 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were well, both to some degree hair bands of the I 80s. Guess. The Electric Light Orchestra would have been taken a little more seriously oh, yeah. in the grand Lynn, scheme of I mean, things. Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 absolute talent. Top, top level. And, uh, and I don't know that we could really name a member or a former member of REO Speedwagon. Who can't? I can't. Kevin Cronin, okay. lead singer. You did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. I would expect you to name a member of that cute band um, <laughs> <laughs> that had the, the perm and all that good right, stuff. Right, right There you go. And we, uh, we didn't play, like, Can't Fight This Feeling or one of the sappier songs. At least there was a little edge to that one. But, I mean, they had a lot of hits. They I mean, they, they, during that period of time with the hair bands of the 80s, uh, they were a big deal. But the Electric Light Orchestra was a, a consequential music act, not just of their time, but to this day, people take their music a little more seriously than they do REO Speedwagon. 843-661-0937 is our number. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Uh, fellas, after hearing that Governor Haley contacted Donald Trump and informed him he was, she was going to run, do you think she's positioning herself to be a vice presidential candidate, considering he's only a one-term prospect? I said it earlier, and, I, and I'll say it again, and I'll stick to this. Thank you for the call. To pre- That's an interesting comment. The two things that Nikki is, and I know this, guys, because I got elected lieutenant governor when Nikki Haley got elected governor. And real quickly, Nikki's, Nikki's campaign was going nowhere fast. I mean, it really and truly was. In fact, there was a moment in time, and I've shared this conversation or this story with our listeners before, Kahaley was running my campaign, and it looked like Andre Gresham and Henry for governor. I mean, it really did. Nikki was a um, struggling to raise money, struggling to gain any traction, and we were concerned that Nikki may reconsider a run for governor and run for the lieutenant governor's job. That's when we ran separate of one another. It's, it's a team now, um, and and you know we thought we were in a good place. Tim Scott had gotten out of our race. We considered him as Hamilton did Jefferson or Jefferson uh, did Hamilton a very worthy foe. But once Tim got out of the race, 
we felt like we were in a good place. We'd build a network of support. But when Nikki was was not raising money and seemed not be gaining traction, we, we got a little bit worried. Like she could reconsider this run for governor. She's got more money than we've got in the campaign. Um, she's already got some name ID having run for governor. She'd be a serious threat. So we started kind of exploring, you know, who would know something about whether she's thinking about doing that or not. And then Sarah Palin happened. And that would have been the absolute high water mark of the Tea Party. And Sarah Palin was as popular in American politics as she ever was and ever will be. For For a a moment moment in time, the stars aligned. And when Sarah Palin endorsed Nikki Haley on the door, on the steps of the state house, I was there. I mean, I saw something crazy happen and you knew that there was a sensation. People were muddling around with Andre and Henry and Gresham and nobody was crazy about Andre Henry or Gresham. But when Nikki got endorsed by Sarah Palin, she became a legitimate candidate for governor. And what I noticed about Governor Haley, she was extremely disciplined and unbelievably ambitious. And I don't say those in, in a negative or a positive way. They just are what they are. I am nowhere near as politically ambitious as Nikki Haley. I don't know anybody that is. Now, once again, that there are some people say, well, that, that, that concerns me. It concerns me. But, but politically ambitious people do whatever it takes to, to, to meet their ambition. And, and Nikki is unbelievably disciplined. She is a, a political talent. She has a, um, a little of exclusivity in the marketplace, being a, uh, you know, a female of Indian descent in a party that is being stigmatized as too pale, too male, and too, you know, what, what it was it was, pale, male, and stale. stale. Yeah, those are the three, um, you know, descriptives that we've applied to the Republican Party. So, but, but Nikki's not going to beat Donald Trump because I think despite her discipline, despite her ambition, she's tried to have it both ways. She's tried to convince the Republican base that she's an America firster while figuring out a way to build a house in Hilton Head on the backs of establishment-oriented politics. And I just think that's a, that's too complicated a position for anybody to be in. And when you look at Nikki Haley, I see, you know, I don't know if I'm right. I could be wrong. I could very easily be wrong. I think I am, but it could be. I see the establishment candidate that the establishment believe they can sell to the America firsters as tolerable, acceptable. I don't think they can, but they are a lot smarter than I have, have a lot more capabilities than I do. The one thing I do feel like I have is a pretty good understanding of the Republican primary voter in South Carolina. I mean, I've, I've asked those people for their support. They gave it to me in overwhelming fashion. I'll share this with you. Um, a bit braggadocious. You ready, Rev? Mm-hmm. I beat Nikki by more than Nikki beat uh, Vincent. When Vincent Shaheen ran against Nikki Haley, I had my vote total was greater indifference to Nikki's than Nikki's was to Vincent Shaheen. So there was always a little bit of skepticism about, you know, the, the ambitious nature of which. And, and once again, the ambition and discipline can be good, can be bad, depending on what your interpretation of her motivations are. But, but you know, is she playing for a vice presidential spot? And knowing the job is open in 28, there will not be. I mean, if, if Biden runs and wins, and there's a chance that happens. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's highly likely, but there's a chance Biden runs and wins. If Biden runs and wins, there is no incumbent in 28. And if I'm Haley and I'm DeSantis, I'm thinking about 28 because I'm not in a rush. I'm not in my 70s. I'm in my 40s, maybe 50. I think Nikki may be 50 now. Um, but but I'm thinking about the long game. Um but, but Nikki Haley's running for president 
because the establishment uh, the establishment wing of the party believes that they can make her acceptable enough to the America Firsters, and she has a chance to win by bringing in diverse groups of people, her being ethnic. And, and will it work? Don't have any idea. I believe the only acceptable alternative to Trump is DeSantis. If you are truly an America Firster, and you're trying to decide whether Trump is the right guy or not, it's easy to decide between Trump and Haley, Trump and Pompeo, Trump and Chris Christie, Trump and Mike Pence. Trump and Ron DeSantis is a little harder debate to have mm-hmm. introspectively. And uh, I wanted, since you mentioned DeSantis, I want to go back to something Jeff said and the bill in Florida as it relates to books in schools. You actually read the bill. You I've read the House bill. Now, the Senate took the bill and added um, 12-year term limits for um, school board members. But, but the bill basically audits the libraries. I mean, it, it offers parents a chance to make sure the districts are being transparent in what sort of instructional materials they're using. Uh, that, that includes the library. That includes reading materials. But they're not putting all the books in all the boxes and, and having a book burning in Daytona Beach before the Daytona 500 with all the NASCAR right-wing nuts. I mean, that, that's the way NB, MSNBC would articulate it. Or the New York Times and Washington Post. Stop trusting those people. Even the naive liberal questions whether or not they're motivated by the truth or not. I mean, I know they're not, but some of us are still considering. But but DeSantis is basically empowering parents to audit the instructional material curriculum that, you know, their kids are being taught. In other words, do you want your seven-year-old being taught about transgenderism and oral sex? I don't. I mean, I don't. And I want to know if they're being taught that. Well, I think DeSantis is, and that, that's going to be his platform. He's the education governor. Here's what I've done. Not what I said. You know, he took one shot at Trump yesterday. I don't know if you saw this or not. No. He was asked to address some of the criticism of Trump, and he never said a bad thing about Trump. He did say this. I got reelected. I mean, I, that's his message. Mm. I got reelected. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken. I guess we grew up, well, I'll call us the 2A football Jack and Diane days. Uh and when I watch this Murdoch trial, I think about you. He went to Wade Hampton High School, Ken. Do you know what their mascot is? A good trivia question for you. Wade Hampton. We played him in basketball at the tournaments one year. And why I remember that, I don't know. I don't remember their mascot. It's close to your. It's close to yours. You're a Red Raider. Yeah. They're Red Devils. Okay, Red Devils. Could, could you imagine playing against a team called Red Devils? And mm. that was my arch rival. And doggone Hampton was 10 miles away from me growing up. And you know what? They had a Hardee's. They had a, a Sky City, which is like a Roses. So you can go there and buy records back in the day. And it had a movie theater. So back in the day, they were a big, big city is what I say. But I don't know, probably only about three, 4,000 people. But, um, you know, imagine being born into a law firm dynasty in a small town. So I always think about that. And I, I, similarities. I think he went to that high school. He went to University of South Carolina. Uh, but this just, that, that's just a crazy thing. But they always got history in the railroad industry. But anyway, seven years fast forward in my life, I ended up, I was living in Westerville, Ohio. And uh, when I think about that, did you watch uh, Stephanopoulos the other day? See that panel? I did. Uh, I've watched it about every other. uh, I don't catch it every Sunday, but I've watched it about every other Sunday. 
Well, here's my question. I was watching John Kasich, and he's obviously a never trapper, and, and John Weaver was his campaign manager back in the day. He's disgraced part of that Lincoln project. But to me, you have to think, you've got you've brought this up so well. Uh, there is a part of the Republican Party, you call it never trumper. Um, my thing is that with DeSantis, can DeSantis get those folks? Do you think, do you think Kasich would vote for DeSantis? I, that's my question for you real quick. Ah, uh, no. You don't think he would vote for DeSantis? No. Even being a... So, in other words, these Kasich people, where do they go to? They just stick with the Democrats? That's a good question, because well, they're, they they're probably... And, and, they're, and, David, that's the conundrum. It's we, we, the conundrum. It's 15, per, it's 15 to 20% of our party that just say thank you but no thank you to anything that smells or, or, or reeks of Donald Trump, period. But are there Kasich people? I mean, well, I mean yeah, uh, establishment Republicans. I mean, those who have figured out a way to get wealthy off the political system, I mean, that's the establishment world order. And that's what Nikki did. See, when Nikki, Nikki, I think Nikki in her early days of politics sincerely believed in the kind of the Sanford libertarian view. She was kind of a Sanfordite. I mean, she, she would have been an acolyte, a little bit of Mark Sanford. But, but once Nikki got a taste of insiderism and saw how lucrative it was, she was enamored with it. Nikki didn't have any money. Her family didn't have any money. I'm talking about, I mean, they weren't broke, but they didn't have money to buy a home in Hilton Head. And if you remain in America first, or you better be independently wealthy because there ain't a lot of deals to be had out there with, uh, with consulting and insiderism, so to speak. I think David will agree with that. I mean, when, when Nikki said, I'm going this way instead of that, it was, it was to make money. Maybe David well, is, or are you still no, there, David? Hey, no, no. My, yeah, I'm still here. No, no. I, when I think of Nikki Haley, I think about a store there in, in, in Orangeburg that they used to have clothes for the people on the news in Columbia. But anyway, but she's from Bamberg. Uh, I understand, man. My, that's my neck of the woods. Sure. Uh, that's what I, anybody that grows up in that area, they know about living in a small town. But my thing is, this, where does DeSantis, where can he pick up? In other words, you got to get that's you, you perfect conundrum. Where do you get that Trump voter? You stick have, uh, sticks with you, but you can get still some of these because I think you said there was twenty percent of the party is like a Kasich or a Larry Hogan that they don't want to mess around with um, America first. Well, and, and you got to win. Yeah, sure you By do. Thank, line, you got to win. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. And 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 that goes back to DeSantis. You you got a linear graph. And on one end is Chris Christie and John Kasich. On the other is Donald Trump. Where is Nikki Haley on that linear graph? What side of the 50-yard line is she? I think she's on the wrong side. And I've got no personal beef with Nikki. I mean, I mean this sincerely. I'm just handicapping the way I see the race and in respect to the voter. But then you've got DeSantis clearly on the other side of the 50. So if you've got a linear graph and on one end is Trump, on the other end is, you know, Hogan and um, Kasich and uh, Christie. Who other than DeSantis is on the right side of the 50 as far as an America First voter goes? See, that that's, I don't know of anybody else. I mean, J.D. Vance would be on that side, but J.D. just got elected, you know, governor, excuse me, um, senator of, of Ohio. Blake Masters would be on this side of the 50, the right side of the 50. But, I mean, do you really believe Blake Masters, I mean, what, what does he run on? Um, is there a business person out there? You know, is, uh, is I mean, you got Peter Thiel. You know, what, what what does Thiel think of DeSantis? You know, is Thiel willing to get that involved in the Republican primary and choosing uh, somebody who believes? Because Thiel is kind of an anti-China America firster. 
You know, some of us are America first and then anti-China. Teal would be an anti-China and then America um, firster. What about Rand Paul and Ted Cruz? Well, I mean, they're obviously on the right side of the 50, but are they electable? I mean, is Ted Cruz really electable in a 50-state campaign? I don't think so. Ted Cruz is not. You ready? He's not very likable. He's just not. There's something about Ted Cruz that people are suspicious of. I mean, he looks a little bit like he might have teenage boys in his basement or something. I mean, I don't know. There's just something odd about his, you know, you do, you, some of you, you laugh it because I try to be funny, but know. you know exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. There's something unsettling about Ted Cruz. People can't get comfortable with him uh, and they don't like him much. They, tr- they, you know, they, they believe he's smart. They think he's capable. Uh, they, they believe he's an effective senator. He stands uh, where they stand on the majority of issues. But when it comes to likability or not, he just can't get there. Rand Paul's a bit goofy and quirky. On the issues, Rand Paul, I'll tell you this. On the issues, I'm more of a Rand Paul acolyte than I am a Donald Trump. Uh, Trump doesn't have a libertarian bias about him. I mean, he's very much uh, pragmatic. It's make a deal. You know, I'll cut a deal with you if you'll cut a deal with me. Trump never mentioned the debt. He never mentioned reform in Social Security or Medicare. I think if you're a serious Republican, you've got to make part of your platform or agenda, you know, making modifications, major modifications to Social Security and Medicare. So my political perspectives are probably more in line with Rand Paul than anybody. But Rand Paul's too quirky. He's too odd to win an election. Um, DeSantis seems to me to be very electable. He's a kind of kind of a likable person. Um, not not as likable as I'm trying to think of. A, who's the most likable politician in America today? I mean, who do you just kind of like? Um, the the senator from Louisiana, Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy. I mean, he's just kind of a likable guy. Tim Scott. Tim Scott's a likable guy, no doubt about it. Very likable person. That's a big deal, guys. Do I know you? Do I like you? If you can't put a check in those two boxes, forget it. You have 0% chance uh, to win. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Morning, Ashley. Hi, good morning, fellas. Uh, I got a comment and a question. Um, back to Jeff's call. Um, I, think, I think the Democrats are finally realizing that they cannot take all the intellectual high ground and try and take all the moral high ground without some pushback. And, and, and I, I could tell the tone in his voice. It was very condescending. It was kind of what we expect from a Yankee or someone from up North saying, you know, yeah, you speak slow, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my question is, how would that conversation go? When you were 16 years old at the Salem skating ring, how would that go down versus now? And I'll take it off there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, the one thing Trump, the legacy of Donald Trump will be long and far reaching. I mean, some, some will be proud of and some will kind of scratch our heads and ask, why'd you do that? I mean, but that's our life. I mean, the, the only difference in Trump's life and ours, I mean, he, obviously he's lived in the public domain. Everything he's done has been scrutinized to some degree. He's chased wealth and fame and fortune, but he's an imperfect man in an imperfect world. We have that in common. We're all imperfect men and women living in a very imperfect world. The one thing Trump convinced the the, the Republican Party it could do and get away with is fight back. 
It doesn't matter how many times Chuck Todd has you on Meet the Press. It doesn't matter how many um, negative things George Stephanopoulos says about, you know, uh, Williams called in a second ago and talked about Jim Jordan on Meet the Press. I mean, Jordan goes on Meet the Press. He fights. And Chuck Todd said, okay, let's have at it. I mean, Chuck Todd basically said, nobody believes I'm a journalist anyway. So I'm going to attack you and expect you to attack me back. And that's exactly what happened. Trump convinced Republicans they could fight and get away with it. You didn't have to take it. It doesn't matter if you're exempted from the cocktail list. It doesn't matter if you don't invite it to the, uh, to the dinner parties in Washington. It doesn't matter if Meet the Press invites you twice a year like they did John McCain and Bob Dole and some of the old guard. I mean, as soon as Dole became the GOP nominee, what was he? He was a mortal enemy of the American political left. Um, so, 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 I mean, I think there's an adaptation going on as we speak, and I think the Republicans are learning how to fight in a way they never have. Now, now why am I so intrigued by DeSantis? Because he's figured out a way to fight and it not necessarily be all about him. That's why I find him interesting. DeSantis is very confrontational, very combative, but it doesn't seem to me it's about, I did this. And, you know, look at, look at my name on the side of the building. And I don't care how ardent a Trump supporter you are. You've got to admit that that's a blind spot of Donald Trump. He is a narcissistic SOB to the nth degree. Now, he's in a world of narcissism. He's right at home. I mean, when you talk about narcissism and BS, Donald Trump's as good at that as anybody. Well, he's at home in the political world because uh, one of the most active ingredients in American politics is narcissism and BS. And maybe that's why they struggle accepting Trump as a kind of a political reality and brute force because they've had the, the kind of the monopoly on narcissism and BS. But, but Trump has taught the Republican Party, you don't have to take it. You can fight back. You don't have to be diplomatic. Forget getting, I mean, maybe you don't get invited to meet the press. Maybe you don't get the, um, the Time Magazine Man of the Year. Maybe, um, maybe you don't get the Nobel Peace Prize. But, but you can show the media for what they are. I tweeted yesterday. I thought one of the more creative and sarcastic tweets of mine didn't get much response. I think my, my, my sarcasm is a bit demented. I mean, it, it can get extreme. If a tree falls on the air on CNN, is it a noise? <laughs> That's pretty good. CNN is averaging less than a half million primetime viewers nightly. Seriously, but that, that's a bizarre number. The most trusted name in news is averaging less than one half of one million voters, excuse me, of, um, of viewers every single night in primetime. 22% of their primetime lineup are, are brought to you by Big Pharma. In other words, we don't care if you make money or not. We'll keep. Why would Big Pharma advertise on CNN a, a national network with less than half a million viewers? Because they, they shop stories. I mean, they need a narrative creative. They, they need the media on their, on their team. So when you look at about one in four ads on CNN, which nobody's watching, but Big Pharma keeps spending money with CNN. Why? You know why. You know exactly what the deal is. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning, guys. Uh, Ken, we were talking about education, and as you well remember, I called when you had our representatives on the program couple of weeks ago about why the curriculum cannot be fixed. Ron DeSantis is the perfect example of a legislative body and a governor that is trying to fix and protect children 
against pornography, against all the things that are so destructive. The radical left realized in the long game that they had to dumb down America. And they started with the children in school, where we used to run, we had civics, biology, uh, English, spelling, arithmetic, uh, history. Now they only want to teach things that will distort and warp our children's minds. So they were in it for the long game. But Ron DeSantis has given them a, a, a platelet to go by to try and change it. When you've got my representatives did not answer me last week, do any of them even know what the 1619 Project is? Do they know that pornography should be and is, has been for a long time, against the law, but now being allowed to be taught to our children? Uh, we, I think I coined the word uniparty a couple of years ago when I called in. And what kills me is that we don't vet these, uh, especially these 19 senators, uh, including ours, that voted to help the Democrats. I wondered, and Trump made an awful mistake when he put Lindsey Graham on the stage with him because the two things that Lindsey helped the Democrats pass are both in direct uh, contradiction to what Trump was trying to do, which is, and I have no idea if they are dumb or if they just went along because they wanted to, but in the omnibus bill, the open border thing is specified as it cannot be used, the money therein cannot be used to enforce the border, but only to process illegals and get them into the country. In the non-infrastructure bill, that was 90% of trying to get rid of fossil fuels and get the green solar panels, charge stations, and all those things put in. And Lindsey Graham had the nerve to stand beside Trump knowing that that was direct contradiction of the policies that Trump has had. Now, Lindsey Graham learned well because he had a lot of instructions from the DNC and the Democrat Party on how to win an election. You referred to he wins by overwhelm. Well, the fact is, when you run in seven candidates in the primary and not a one of them is known, and probably three-quarters of them are paid to run against you so that you will get the majority of the vote, that is a Democrat playbook. So, but it, but it, th thank you, Daphne. You appreciate it. But it works. I mean, all I can say is Lindsay never loses. I mean, it, you know, the, the other 49 states in America wonder, how in the world South Carolina professes to be as conservative as it is and has a senator like Lindsey Graham. I hear it every day. When I was lieutenant governor, I heard it. I mean, when I would um, when I would go to functions with other 
leaders of other states, and they would always ask at some point in time, what's your relationship like with Senator Graham? And I always said, fine. I mean, I don't, I don't think Lindsey has a problem with me, and I'll have a problem with Lindsey. And they'd always ask, well, I mean, you guys are a real conservative state. How does that guy continue to win by such wide margins? Um, I, Lindsey's a good politician. Called it, called a spade a spade. He is a very, very capable politician. I want to go back to what she said about education, because I think if DeSantis decides to get in, this will be one of the, the, the critical components of his, of his campaign. And he's basically arguing. I mean, it, it's hard to wrap it up in a sentence, but he's saying that, that parents' involvement is not only a right, but a responsibility. He's encouraging parental empowerment, parental involvement. He's, um, he's not only vetting or, or auditing what the material is, some of the um, curriculum and teaching material. He's basically saying the, the, the public, we need full transparency. The public needs to understand completely and totally what sort of curriculum kids are being taught in the classroom. But he uses the word, and didn't mind it's his, when he says parents don't just have a right, but rather a responsibility to the education system of which their kid is participating in. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our break. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, we talk about pinning the, the money to the backpack, but we we pin the money on, on welfare and food stamps, but yet all these kids come to school hungry. Jeff, in a way, is kind of right because parental – Engagement has to be. When I grew up, they had to reform school. And I was constantly reminded of that. If you don't behave, you're going to reform school. Well, they don't have that anymore. In a classroom of 30 kids, two or three kids can totally disrupt that whole classroom. And the teachers really aren't allowed to do a whole lot with them. You know, they've, they've coddled to the troublemakers more than to the people that want to learn. That's why private schools do so well. If I'm going to pay seven, $8,000 for my child to go to private school, I'm not going to put up with somebody going there and disrupting. I mean, kids now can miss 10, 20, 30, 40 school days a year and make it up by going like three or four hours on a Saturday four times. And you make up 40 days of missed school, and the, the teachers can't get the parents to come to school unless they take the cell phone away, and then the parent will be there in five minutes. Why do kids have cell phones in the class when the teacher's trying to teach? That's never made any sense to me. Those cell phones should be locked up when they walk in the door, and when you walk out the class, you get your cell phone. And when you go into the next class, you put that in that lockup and you get it when the class is over. You know, we can we can throw money at it, but you're going to have the same thing that we got now unless they take discipline serious, teach the ones that want to teach, the ones that don't want to learn. You're going to have to either put them in some kind of reform school, but, you know, that's telling the truth. And, and you were right about Donald Trump. He showed us how to fight back because these people have lied about him from day one. He stood in the corner and said, come on, 
Ron DeSantis is kind of like that, but you don't think they're going to beat him up the same way? Oh, they'll crucify him. They'll prosecute him. Of course, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. They'll um, I mean, they'll, they'll persecute him like they did, like they did Trump. The the moment DeSantis becomes a front runner in the GOP, he'll get the exact same treatment that Donald Trump and has. And they're already starting. Sure. I mean, Jeff's call this morning is example. It's the it's MSNBC and CNN talking point. Apparently, take a break. Back in just a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Don in Florence. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Ken. I wanted to kind of piggyback on your last couple of callers on the education system versus our politicians. What a, people, a lot of people don't realize, for 50 years now, we've got several generations of parents who have been dumbed down. We, this isn't a new phenomenon. Students have been systematically dumbed down. So then when you have these children that have been dumbed down over generations, you're going to get politicians like AOC. You're going to get your Lindsey Grahams. You're going to get your Nancy Pelosi. They don't know no better. They know what they're told, and they listen to the education system that has been, I guess, perverted. It's just a, it's just a sham. It's a perversion that's going on. I ain't talking about, you know, the sexuality of it, but... The general concept of a good education is so twisted and convoluted, you're not going to get an educated voter. And if if the people are the leaders of this country, they're not fit to lead because they're not educated. Not by choice, but by a system that has made it that way. That's all I have. Thank you, sir. That's a lot. And that really goes back to this concept I have. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I, it's in my head. I mean, I, I can see as clearly as I'm looking at Dave through the through the glass. You know, I'm serious when I don't call him Reb. Um, I got a buddy of mine who calls me Ken Ard. You know what I mean? I've told Reb this story a hundred times. Uh, when he calls me Ken, we're just talking. When he says Ken Ard, uh, I'm like, oh, crap. I mean, yeah, there's something serious. Better we're pay about, attention. Yeah, we, we're about to discuss something. It's a little like Rev says I have this way of saying things. Um, what do you say, boss man? <laughs> I mean, that, everything's fine there. Yeah. Uh, but but if I ever get to um, what was that, Captain? Captain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Boss man and Bo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Say, say that again, Bo. You know we're still on good terms. Yeah. But if I but if I ever say, what will you say, Captain? That's right. Not Captain. <laughs> Captain. <laughs> C-A-P apostrophe N. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, say that again, Boss man. <laughs> what will you say, Boss? <laughs> Whoa, Captain! <laughs> All of a sudden, there's a severity that we're well, okay. We're we're about to go to blows, yeah, man. We're about to your we're about to come to blows. No, but but the concept I try to illustrate is, and, and this gets goofy. I mean, this gets real ah, conspiratorial in nature. But but I believe with every fiber of my being that the government is incrementally and procedurally trying to convince you to do what they need you to do because it's in your best interest to do it. Their motivation is you, your way of life, your well-being, your your financial future. And, and the people that stand against government are no longer celebrated as heroic. They're rather deemed, you know, inappropriate. Um, rabble-rousing is not in vogue. Uh, what is Jefferson? I mean, one of the nicknames of Thomas Jefferson was the redhead rabble rouser from the Commonwealth of Virginia, and he wore it with a badge of honor. 
And, and, I, and I go back to these words, and, and I believe this, Rev, with every fiber of my being. A lot of the anti-masculine movement in America today, the, the labeling of masculinity is toxic. Masculinity is something inside of a man that, that, that exudes itself that I'm a, I'm a creature meant to be free and liberated from bondage and, and the confines of other people telling me what I can and cannot do. And, and when government tells a, a courageous masculine person, you can't do this, your natural reaction is, why can't I? Who says I can't? You don't have the right to tell me that. Well, I think the anti-masculinity movement is less about sexual orientation and more about conditioning people to be conformed. In other words, if we can, if we can exude, if we can, if, if we can dispense of the masculinity in most American men, they'll be more inclined to do what we say do. They'll be more, I mean, if we say the line starts here and ends there, they'll get in that line. But, but if they, if we allow them to continue to celebrate and, and, and condition that masculinity has to be a part of this and courage is a kind of a, a residue of, of that masculinity. I, I believe that. I mean, I believe that with every, and that gets goofy. I mean, that gets out there. I mean, people are like, whoa, dude, I mean, you're losing me there. I mean, I got you at Bo um, and Captain, but you've really lost me there. But I can see it as clearly as, as once again, I'm looking at Rev through this glass that the government is intentionally labeling certain characteristics of manliness that, that are aggressive in nature, not dangerous, not menacing, not threatening, but, but a little bit aggressive. I'm going to aggressively defend my rights, and you don't have a right to take it from me. That masculinity breeds courage. That courage breeds a willingness to stand against authoritative entities. The less masculinity, the less courage. The less courage, the less resistance. The less resistance, the more people do what they're told to do. Look at old Bo over there. Yeah. He might fight back. You, that's right. What do you say, Captain? <laughs> We'll see. Enjoy your day. We're going to take a break. We'll take a 23, about a 20-hour break. There you go. But we'll be back tomorrow morning. Enjoy your day.